kind of law would that be? Why would they stop us? What would be the grounds for that? Too many Pratchett podcasts? Terrorism? Terry. Sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're not doing that at all. Instead, we're celebrating 60 episodes by answering your questions. And questioning your answers. I can't believe it has only been two years since we did one of these, because um, <laughs> that means we've done like 30 episodes in two years, which mathematically, you know, that that sort of makes sense to me, but that's... Ridiculous. Two and a half years. Two and a half years, Liz. Two and a half, but that is like, we do read a book pretty much every episode. So that is a lot of books. I know that's like just under 30 books, but still, that is a lot of books. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. It's a lot. And we've done 10 bonus episodes in the whole time we've done the podcast. So I think about half of those have probably been in the last two and a half years. So that's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. Right, so I guess every 30 episodes, and we've done this only once, so we can still say every 30 episodes, we do a special episode (laughs) where it's no book at all, and we talk about questions from our listeners, and we also put forward questions to you in advance that we've gotten answers from, and then sneakily we ask you more questions, so the question cycle continues. So it's kind of like the end of the episode, but like all of the episode, but also looking back over everything we've done. So, like, yeah, I kind of like this little um, bookmarks. Is that a good way to put it, that we sort of put along the way? <laughs> so when we get to 90, we'll do this again. Yeah, well, I mean, who knows? I mean, when we started, we called this a six-ish year mission because we sort of roughly calculated how long we thought it might take to do the whole set of books. So it's a lot of books, you know, a lot of novels, a lot of short stories. We thought, yeah, six-ish years. It's been five now, so we might get it to at least 70. In fact, I know we'll get to at least 72. Like a really long-ish. Yeah, so that's six-ish and probably a bit longer than that. Who knows? Who knows? We don't know. Someone knows. Somebody, not us. Someone good at maths and seeing into the future. (laughs) Yes. And I think the last time we did this was uh, in April 2020 when... You know, nothing much was happening, <laughs> was it, Liz? Really? You can't be saying April 2020 and, you know, you just can't be saying April 2020. Like, we, it's too soon. Okay. I'm sorry. We won't consider that. No, we should. I mean, look, I just want to acknowledge it. I mean, one of the reasons we took that break was it was the first lockdown we had in Melbourne, which went for about two months. It's pretty long. I can't remember. Um, not the longest one we had. They all blur into one. It's just like one super lockdown with little <laughs> tiny bits. Like, cause you know, it comes straight out of lockdown. You sort of go, is it okay to come out? Is it okay? And by the time you've decided it's okay, isn't a lockdown? So, <laughs> I mean, look, you know, and it's still, everything's still happening. And we, we haven't recorded in person since that time. Oh, well, we've done, we've done like a video thing one time. We did that. Yeah. Christmas we met thing. in person to do a Christmas thing, I think. When it wasn't Christmas, mm. it was Hogswatch. Yeah, true. 
It's not the same. Like we used to always go sit around, Ben's big table that's like big enough for board games with our guest and we'd all have a chat and you could sort of see everyone. You could, you know, pick up social cues a lot better in things. So, um, I, but I don't think it's impacted it. Like it's, it's also like widened the reach of guests that we can have. It's changed like the timetable we can do. So there's pros and cons. Um, I mean, obviously I'd rather there not have been a yeah. pandemic at all, but <laughs> there we go. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but let's not get too much into that because without wanting to spoil anything, that is a question that someone has asked and we'll get to it. But we should just get into the questions, I think, because that's why we're here. And this was a great opportunity to answer questions about books that people missed a chance to ask about the first go round, to answer general questions about Discworld, about Pratchett's works and about us and the podcast. So why don't we get into it, Liz? Where are we going to start? We've got so many questions. Well, I feel like what's the first question we should do is already a question. So we've already started, but um, to answer, like, <laughs> to see our second question, perhaps. Um, I thought maybe we should kick off with some of the specific book ones because there's not too many of those. All right, let's do that. Yeah, let's look at book. Yeah. Book look. Look at specific book. Now, we did get quite a few questions about small gods from longtime listener Steve Lay. I would love to start with those. If the penguin is the second most confused bird in the world, what is the most confused bird? I have to confess that I spent a long time thinking about this and I kept coming up with different answers because it depends on like what would confuse a bird. Like what are they confused about? Do mm. they have the same confusion standards as people? Um, if I were a bird, what would confuse me? Like I, my brain went too deep into this question and came out with an unsatisfactory answer. So I mean, I kept coming back to the cassowary is, is what. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and I, the thing is, like, I thought, like, oh, yeah, penguin is a confused bird because it goes into the water and it swims, but it also flies and it's kind of, but it can't really fly outside of it. So, like, what kind of bird is that? Cassowary is a bird that I think is most like its ancestor, the dinosaur. And so it, it seems like a time yes. traveler, like, it's as though it just didn't do the evolution or possibly just got plopped here, like, fell out of a, like, mm. a time travel thing and was kind of like, I used to be in charge here. Everyone used to look like me. And now there's these like hairless things wandering around trying to get photos of me. Yes, I know what photos are somehow as a cassowary. I'd find that very confusing. Uh -huh. So that's what I ended up on. I'm not sure if it is the best answer, but it's where my brain kept going. I think that seems reasonable. It's a, that's a good answer. I thought about this a lot because I feel like there is a really like a bird that is well known for not knowing. I mean, I, f I feel if they were still around, dodos would probably be the most confused mm. bird because they think humans are nice mm. and then they just get eaten. Um, but I mean, lots of birds think that. The bird that should have sprung to my mind is the kakapo, the great ground parrot of Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand. Their confusion seems baked in to their behaviours. One of their defensive instincts is to climb a tree and then jump out of it because apparently they've forgotten that they are flightless. Male kakapo make a special booming call to attract potential mates that can travel over many kilometers, but it's so low pitched and echoes so much that female kakapo can't actually tell where the booming sound is coming from. And then there's the kakapo ejaculation helmet which I'll leave you to look up. But the short version is that Sirocco, one of the only males in captivity, wouldn't mate with anything except human heads. Definitely a contender for the most confused bird. What I want to know is, do you think there's a canonical answer for this? Like, did Pratchett have a most confused bird in mind and he just didn't 
tell us so that we'd forever be guessing? Or is it just because it's funnier to say the second most confused bird in the world? I think it's funnier, but he could have come up with a really good argument if put on the spot to name a first one. But I don't think he had a canonical, <laughs> always the correct answer first one. Is it one of the birds that Hodgesarg? It's not really how you say it, is it? It's more Hodgesarg. <laughs> Uh, but he, is it one of his birds? Is that the most confused bird in the world? I reckon he'd have had a rotating answer. That would have definitely been in the rotation, but I don't think it would have been the definitive answer. <laughs> well, that seems reasonable. Mm. All right. I think that's enough about this confused bird. What else has Steve got for us about small so gods? So another question about small gods, is Patina actually the goddess of wisdom or the goddess of those who only seem wise, but scratch the surface and there's a deep layer of ignorance underneath? Ben, you've done some research or you've got, you've had some thoughts. Well, look, I, f- I just want, Steve, I'm just going to call you out here for a second and, and say that this is less a question and more an excuse for you to show off how clever you are. Because yes, I think this is absolutely what Terry was thinking, as well as it being, as you point out, a pun on the name Athena, the goddess of wisdom, etc. And I'm very glad to have that pointed out to me because that is a glorious pun and also, you know, just levels. I mean, levels in the reference, but levels sort of here. So it's good. And it rhymes. I mean, it's so, oh, it's a perfect one. I think, yeah, the answer is yes. I have a friend called Athena and I'll bring this up with her. <laughs> <laughs> is this going to be her new nickname, Athena? <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, that seems that seems mm. fair. And there's one more, one more from Steve about this book. Um, so one more question, a quote. So and an expression that suggested that whatever it was, it really dreaded ever happening to it had already happened. So that's the end of the quote. Describe this penguin. <laughs> I <laughs> describe this penguin what, as what happy and content and zen- like kind of like with a far away look because like if the thing that you dreaded the most had already happened, like. It's just chill times on the other side of that because like you can't be anxious about it anymore. That's one way to look at it. I mean, the other way to look at it is it has the expression of dread and it, it is frozen because it has been turned into what it feared. Like it's been, yeah, I don't know. I like your, (laughs) I like your interpretation. I want to believe that the penguin is relieved, but then how do you know that it has been stressed? And there's a haunted look it's, at the back. Difficult. Like, it, you know, it's seen some things, but it's like nothing can ever be that bad again. Mm. So, like, you can see at the back that something has happened, but there's yeah. a relaxation there. Like, you're not as tensed as you were once. You're sort of like, oh, it's done. I've seen some stuff. Mm. You've got the thousand barrel stare of like having seen some stuff, <laughs> but you're not a ball of yeah. tensed muscles. So, you know, it's behind them. You know that they're not okay, but like, it's, it's done. Mm. It's never going to be that bad again. That makes sense. I mean, I think I think this is a good example of the kind of prose description that Terry uses that doesn't necessarily rely on a physical, like a, like a visual mm. image. You know, it's very it's a rich description. It's funny. You can you can have a chuckle at it without having to actually picture what the penguin looks like. And then and if you do pause and try to picture it, it's very open to interpretation. But I do like I like the way you've described it, Liz. We also got some questions about soul music. So this one comes from Glitz1958 via Reddit. If you were asked to pick a lineup for a new free concert in Hyde Park, which more recent band names would you choose? This is a problem for me because I know Ooh. one band and it is Bell and Sebastian and it's not great for like funny puns. <laughs> I sat on the train this morning being like, all right, come on, know some bands. And I was like, William Eyelash. And that was... Well, those are both names of Disney characters from different Disney films. Could you pick a different pair of characters from different classic Disney princess films? 
because you've got like Belle from Beauty and the Beast and Sebastian the Crab from mm. The Little Mermaid. Gaston and Ariel. <laughs> that's a terrible <laughs> mashup. Oh, no. But it, see, that's because they don't have to be a pun. They just have to be a weird mm. reference. I'd watch that movie, though. Like, I would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems fair. I had the problem that a lot of the bands that I like are either quite old or, or actually a lot of the music that I like is not bands. It's, it's like individual artists. I do want a, a shout out to Glitz 1958 mm. who came up with some great ones of their own. English Patella throwing weapons. Terrible. I'm not going to tell you what these are. I worked out yep. most of them, but I'll, I'll let you figure it out for yourself, listener, or we'll put it in the episode notes. No, tweet us if you figure them out. Yeah. Tweet us if you figure them out. So, uh, English Patella throwing weapons. I'll give you a clue. That one is a solo artist. Newly arrived Wood Pond. That's also a solo recording artist. Then there's the bands Tropical Penguins, Payan Park, Unnerved Nana, The Quite Warm Spicy Vegetables, and Glitz 1958 went on. There's a big list. I'm um, so impressed. Yeah, they're really good. I think the, the first one I thought of, though, Melbourne comedy trio Tripod, and I thought if there was a Discworld version of Tripod, uh, they would just be called Three-Legged Dog. I don't know. I mean, some of the ones I would pick, like I, I'm big They Might Be Giants fan, as Terry was. And, of course, in the book he has, we're definitely dwarves. Uh, so that was kind of covered. And I do like, I mean, I have a, a slight penchant for Canadian folk rock bands of the uh, 90s, which already have really weird names like The Arrogant Worms and Moxie Frubus and uh, stuff like that, uh, Captain Tractor. Um, and they, they already sound more or less like they fit in there. But maybe uh, Lieutenant Plough. Might be a good Captain Tractor stand-in. I feel like there is a... This is not really Hyde Park. I feel like there's a good... Some, there's, there's a root of something here that I need helped finishing, so if anyone has that, that's good. Um, Elvis could be something to do with elves and, like, is something and reference, like, fairy circles and things, but I couldn't get to the end of that in a tidy mm-hmm. fashion. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Terry didn't do it because he already had the... This guy looks elvish. Mm. This, guy, this guy works down the chip shop, swears he's elvish which is pretty good. Oh, I, actually, I will mention just one other of Glitz 1958's ones, No Oasis for Oasis. And I just want you to know, if you didn't already know this, Glitz, that in Australia, I am 100% sure there exists an Oasis cover band, which is called No Oasis. I'm pretty sure that is accurate. And in fact, that's probably a good source for these. Just go and look at what the Australian cover bands are called, because they've got exactly these kinds of names. What about... The friendly antelope relative that lives in my house. Okay, I don't know that one. Tame Impala. (laughs) (laughs) I'll pay it. That's very good. Or it's Uh, terrible, depending on which way you come at it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I I mean, look, yeah, and some of the bands I like, they have just really short names that makes it difficult. Like Inspiring Children of the Gods, which would be Muse. Good Jesuses? Is that a band? I told you I know one band. I know two bands, I prove. Yeah, okay. We have asked entirely the wrong people about this. But uh, that was um, difficult should... but fun. Yeah. Maybe we'll get we'll get some music savvy folks mm. on the show at some point and we'll we'll try running this up flying mm. again. Now, uh Glitz, you Glitz again, I just want to shout out to you. You sent us a lot of questions, which we do appreciate. Let's get in just maybe two more of mm. your questions because you asked us about Hogfather. What what do we got for Hogfather? All right, so let's go with what name for a beggar would you have and why would people give you money? I reckon, you know, I, I feel like I'm taking a leaf out of Keith the musician's Keith Leaf. I'm taking a leaf out of uh, his book. 
because I feel like my talent would have to be performance related if I'm going to stay true to my own personality. And I, but I would just, I would have to do something really, really badly. So they wanted me to leave. So probably I would do really bad street theater <laughs> and I'd be borderline street performer slash beggar. And also I would be in trouble with two different guilds because I'm not quite fitting into either of them. But I think that's it. I think. Do you get yeah. an exemption if you're a beggar though? And that's your stick? Like. Surely that, that <laughs> there should be some sort of code where if it's part of being able to properly do your guild, it's okay to sort of impinge on that because you're not actually trying to overlap. Yeah. Maybe my, see, as you say that, it's kind of crystallizing the backstory of this character <laughs> for me. I think I was in the musician's guild and I got kicked out because I was terrible, but then people started giving me money to go away and stop playing music. So I got into the beggar's guild. <laughs> There is, there's actually a scene um, from, um, I think it's New Girl that a friend and I regularly just burst into laughter over where they're thinking about the worst date they've ever been on. And there's one where they're sitting at an outside mm-hmm. cafe and this guy just comes up to them and starts singing like Father Figure. I forget who the, but he's like this overly like sexy song, but he's like not wearing a shirt and he's all like disheveled and they're just trying to have their date. And he's like singing this song at them. It's so deeply uncomfortable. So like something like that. I think just like, <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, as for a name, I think you just have to have a name that is the totally wrong description of what I was doing. I, it would sound like a great actor's name, but then not be. So, Gil you know, bad. like, instead of Gil good. Yeah. <laughs> Gil bad. <laughs> That's good. Cause I was going to sort of Lawrence Olivier <laughs> kind of route. Uh, let's go with Roger Gilbad. The travesty. That's a good name. Of Traviata. No, that's, that's, that's a whole opera. So. <laughs> that's pretty good. But what about you, Liz? If you had to be a beggar on the streets of Ankh-Morpork, what would uh, your horrible skill be to make people give you So money? I think it would actually not be a horrible... So no shade on this person. I absolutely love this customer. He was the best and I only got to encounter him once. We heard stories about him at the cinema um, and I only ever worked this shift that he would come in one time because it wasn't my normal thing, but stories spread through the staff of this man who um, would see several films, but he would write down puzzles for you to guess the names of the films, and he'd put it on a little piece of paper, and he'd hand it over at the counter, and you'd have to figure out what film he wanted to see from the puzzle that he'd made, and I was kind of like, this is amazing, I can't wait to encounter this person, and I finally did, and his puzzles were just so difficult, and I couldn't do it, and I had to ask him what the movies were, and he was so disappointed in me, I could see it in his eyes, because he'd like come up with these really clever things, and it's like when you do crosswords, right, I'm sure some people out there listening do cryptic crosswords, and there's some setters you click mm-hmm. with, and there's some that you don't, so there's ones that you're like, oh yeah, finally, it's like BD, or whoever, and you can just smash through their crossword and you have a little chuckle over the the clues that they do because it just clicks. And then there's another one, you're like, oh, why don't I know anything? How does anyone, like, how have I even got a pen license? I should not be allowed to be doing this crossword. I'm not even getting one of these. <laughs> and it was just one of those moments where I was like, great, I'm this puzzle person, I should be able to do this. And I just disappointed this, like, wonderful gentleman who'd come up with these beautiful puzzles and, I, and there's a finite amount of movies i should have been able to guess them but i couldn't so yeah um i think my thing would be <laughs> and there were movies that were playing in your cinema too like it was not just it was like any 10 things ever. so like i could have just guessed and i got them wrong and he had to tell me and just the discipline he had that penguin look in his eyes like <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was all on, so, okay now we know what he looks yeah. like 
So um, I think that would be my thing, like just puzzles that are way too hard mm-hmm. and and sadness when people can't get them because maybe they'll be like, oh, well, <laughs> I didn't get your puzzles. You've tried really hard, so please just take, um, I don't know, $50. That's my minimum amount for paying. <laughs> I don't know. I never knew what his name was, so this is not based on that, but I also think my begging name would just be a normal name, like Jonathan or Greg or something, because I think that would fit with the character. But no one can ever remember your name, and that's partly why they want you to go away, because they're embarrassed that they mm. don't remember but your name. if that man somehow is listening, I'm sorry I never got your puzzles. It wasn't your puzzles, it was me, and I just wish we were on the same puzzle wavelength. <laughs> that's very generous of you to say that. I just want to throw in the last one from Glitz. We're not going to have time to to talk about this one as well, Glitz. I don't think we've got to move on to some other questions. But you listened to our podcast and did a bit of research. We learned that the idea that witches were midwives who were being persecuted for doing medical stuff is probably not true. It's a later conflation of two different things and that that didn't really happen. People knew midwives weren't witches and that, that, that being in the novels is maybe Terry getting it a bit wrong. I think that's interesting. And Terry may or may not have known that, but I think if we've learned anything from his attitude to research, and particularly the way he represents it when writing another writer doing research in Final Reward, is that if it sounds good, he's like, look, it's close enough to reality, it's plausible, and it's good. So I I have a feeling he may have known that wasn't correct, and he would have used it anyway because it suited the story. Look, there's a whole long conversation we could have about whether that's an okay thing to do, given the circumstances. Um, I think it's probably fine in the milieu of the disc world, but we won't go into that too much because we've got to move on to some other questions. But thank you for those questions, Glitz. Uh, we really appreciate it. It was nice to get some questions from Reddit mm. this time around. Why don't we move on to some general questions about the disc world before yeah. we venture further out into the waters of the entire Pratchett universe? All right. Should we get on to the spicy question? Oh, yeah. Give me the spice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the spice. Let's this do it. One, this question comes from a chew and sneezed via Twitter. Granny Weatherwax is an extremely unlikable character. I get the struggle between good and bad. I get the power. I get the frustration. But oh my God, she's awful to the people who love her for no purpose. We all see that she wins in the end, but is that worth it? She's very unpleasant and I'm not sure why. She has every opportunity to bring Magrat, Nanny and Agnes along for the ride, but she always fails to do so. Anywho, I know this is an extremely unpopular opinion, and I know she's a favorite of a lot of fans. I'm going to die on the granny is awful hill. So spicy. All right, so that ends the quote. That was not me. That was a chew and sneezed. Um, <laughs> you don't need – come on. We're, this, uh, a chew and sneeze, long-time listener, supporter of the mm. podcast. I am not going to let him die alone on this <gasps> hill because I partly agree. I mean, I do think she's awful, and there are times in the books where – I am like, you did not just say that. And particularly the way that she treats Magret mm. in a couple of the books, less so how she treats Nanny because Nanny, you know, they're equals. I know it's not always portrayed that way, but that's how I think about them. And Nanny will give as good as she gets and she can take it like she's tough. But the way that she treats Magret and Agnes, I think maybe to a lesser extent with Agnes, it's not productive. Like, I don't feel it's going anywhere. I don't feel like it really forces growth in Magra, and even if it did, I don't think it would be justified. So I I kind of agree. I think I still like her (laughs) as a character because characters don't have to be likable to be good characters, but I do think that it is difficult when a character is so unlikable that you're like, I cannot stand this person. Like the one time I ever ejected myself from a book and I nearly threw the book across the room was actually 
I'll name the book. It was Dave Eggers' book, They Shall Know Our Velocity, or whatever the title of that book was. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, and I just couldn't stand either of the characters, like the narrator or the other one, and it just got to a point where I don't want to spend any more time with these people, and I stopped reading the book. <laughs> I just really disliked them so much that it was interrupting my enjoyment of the story. Hmm. I don't get that with Granny, but I can see that you could. What do you think? Well, I absolutely am also not going to let a chewing sneeze or you like die on this hill. I will render aid and <laughs> shout to anyone who's coming up the hill to say I support their right to say these things and they've got a good point. I don't necessarily agree with it. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's unlikable. I think she is difficult and I think all of the points about how she is awful to the people around her when she doesn't need to be are valid. But, and I don't know if this is me injecting an undercurrent because I do sort of not so much like, but kind of appreciate. I don't know. I I can't find a word to place on my feelings towards Granny. I feel like she's the sort of, like, all of Mm. this to me is a wall that she places around herself, and it is to the detriment of the people around her, and it is unfair. But if she lets down her wall for a second, she has too much vulnerability and will not be able to function in the way that she does to do the greater good. I think she does a lot of I have to give myself to the greater good. I have to sort of warm myself off so that I can be the most powerful, which I can, so I can protect things. And if I feel things for people, then I won't be able to protect them as strongly. So it may be a cop-out to say Mm. that I feel like she is like this because she loves so strongly that she can't allow herself to feel that way and show it. She has to do it through like self-sacrifice and actions. But I also think at the same time, her long-term friend Nanny understands that. And so she knows that it's not, granny being cruel and unpleasant it's granny protecting herself from the world because i think in in a lot of ways she's one of the most vulnerable characters that's why she is nothing but a series of walls i think Margaret doesn't get that and is extremely hurt by it which is absolutely valid because granny is terrible to her and that's perhaps why she doesn't stay around and again very valid because mm. she's treated not well by these two women that she looks up to but i think the granny and nanny dynamic shows a deep understanding of each other. Granny knows Nanny can take it, and Nanny knows that Granny needs to be like this, otherwise she'd probably just be a non-functioning mess that lies in her bed just borrowing the whole time because she can't deal with not being... Like I think that's her only way of... Mm. It's how she feels she can be the best, is by shutting herself off to other people. Yeah. yeah. I think from a writing perspective, the reason for this behaviour is to be the scaffolding of the whole, not the gag, but like the premise of her character, which is she is the wicked old witch, except she's on the side of Mm. good, you know, because she feels she has to be the good sister because her sister, who had all the attributes of the good witch, like she's got all of the niceties, like she's able to have that sort of personality and get along with people and manipulate things by being nice to them and stuff. But she's not doing what's right with it. You know, she's doing what she thinks is right, regardless of what actually might be. She's doing what's right for her. She's making things into the way she wants them to be. And while you, you can kind of see Granny doing that from a certain perspective, but she also is often doing things that she doesn't really want to do because she believes they're right and they're not good for her. And that includes being feared and scary and mean. I reckon she's also potentially worried about going to the bad. And so she keeps people at arm's length. Yeah. Again, this is all like, doesn't make any of the observations any less valid. She is horrible to the people who love her and whatever her reasons are, that's not a good thing. But I do think that there are reasons and that's why I don't find her unlikable. I find her complicated, which again, maybe a cop out, but 
I think deep mm. down in her mind, there's a good reason for the bad behavior, which doesn't make the bad behavior good, but I think it comes from a place of wanting to be good. Is it like her boffo? Mm. You know, we talked about that in the Wintersmith episode. Tiffany's mentor in that book who... Uh, scary, is, but not really frightening as, but when you get to know is actually kind hearted and nice to everyone. But her outer image is absolutely terrifying. Granny is terrifying, not in a spooky, creepy way, but in a like, she'll just kill you kind of way. So I, yeah. I, no, I think it comes from an existential place. Like I think it is, it runs deeper than that. It's not okay. like, isn't it's a good observation again, but I think it comes from maybe a place of fear. Good question yeah. though. Good question. And please don't pile on a chew and sneeze on Twitter. Like, I think this is a valid. Yeah, very valid. Uh, there's no wrong way to be a Pratchett fan um, unless you're hurting other people. And if this is how you feel about Granny, it's how you feel about yeah. Granny. Um, I still love her as a character and I enjoy every book that she's in, but I can see where you're coming as from. As I said, there's no so, dying on this hill. Yeah. I will be on that hill with don't agree um, necessarily. <laughs> I think all the observations valid and I completely see where they're coming from. I just come to them from a different place. Okay. All right. Shall we go to this one from Penny underscore Madam Lash via Twitter? Is Gaspode still around? He's a magical dog, so I reckon in the year of the whatever year we're in now, he's still going. I hope so. I hope so too. Well, just to address the the practical side of the question, it is the year of the lacrimating leveret. Yeah. I mean, we know at the end, the last book that he appeared in was um, The Fifth Elephant. That's after the truth, isn't it? And he was sailing back to Ankh-Morpork. So we know he's still alive then. I've got no reason to think that he's stopped. I don't know if he turns up later than that, but I reckon he's still around. I guess in my brain, any characters that haven't been overtly killed off are alive forever <laughs> in the Discworld and in all books, pretty much, because I can't really imagine a next. He is also magical, so I feel like he wouldn't have a dog lifespan. He'd have a at least a human or a wizard lifespan, because he is kind of like a wizard in dog form, so... I reckon he's got a strong chance of still keeping on keeping on for a very long time. I think you might be right there. I certainly think he's still kicking around. Mm. Um, even if we goodbye, seen him goodbye, laddie, though. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> who knows? Um, oh, sorry. Uh, and the truth does come afterwards. So that's his last time we saw him. He was back with the canting crew and he's talking to, you know, the newspaper. Do you reckon he stays as an informant? I reckon he like feeds news stories. Absolutely. To the Times. I reckon he'll be in the canon. I reckon he'd have a lifespan of hundreds of years because I reckon he's going to be like a wizard. Because that's his whole, like, well, I mean, he's got a few different origin stories. Everyone. But yeah, I think he would be around for a while. Yeah. Mm. I'll pay that. All right. So next one comes from Chris um, via Twitter. If you were going to get a tattoo of something Discworldly, what would it be? So like a quote, a picture, a symbol, et cetera. Ben, do you want to go first? I have thought about this. (laughs) I sometimes refer to myself as a, a clean skin. In the sense that it sounds terrible. It sounds like some sort of horrible. Is it because you're having a wine? Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, it is. A, it is. I, I picked it because it's an allusion to the wine. But basically what I mean by that is I really like tattoos, but I've never got one and I don't know that I ever will, but I do occasionally think about them. Discworld ones, you see a lot of good ones. Instagram is great for this. You can mm. find lots of great Discworld tat- so inspiration, ones. but I really like text ones. And I do think, and I've seen quite a few versions of this words in the heart cannot be taken. That it's beautiful from the golems. Yeah, I think that would be great. And also you could get it over your heart if you wanted to. Uh, there's been a few others that I've thought of, but I think that's the one that I've come back to when I've thought about it a few times. How about you? Um, so I also have no tattoos. I am too indecisive to get a tattoo. I've always said if I want one, I'd have to come up with what it is. 
and maybe wait one, two or three years to see if I still wanted it. And then, then I'd get it and nothing has lasted that period of time for me. Um, but I do love seeing mm. them. And again, like Ben, I love seeing all the discord ones out there. There's so many beautiful, creative works of art out there that have just been inspired by the books. And I think as an author, that would be amazing to see. Like that would be pretty remarkable to see people turn your words into different interpretations that are meaningful to them. Yeah. So that makes my answer extraordinarily silly. And I'm sorry in advance. Um, no. I ran through all, cause no. there's the beautiful ones that are like of the Discord where you have, you can see the whole, like the space scene. And I always love seeing every version of those because there's just so many beautiful interpretations. But I was like, what if it was me? If it was truly me, what's, what's a quote that I keep coming back to that makes me laugh every time? And what's a way of doing that? And I realized, and it's a terrible way to go for it. Um, my favorite. <laughs> quote that what by favorite i mean the one i think about the most is he could think in italics such people need to be watched preferably from a safe distance it was my email (laughs) signature for a very long time back when people had that as they're like they'd have a fun Mm -hmm. thing that they liked it was like that for a long time never explained what it was and i just think it'd be pretty cool like because i'm so indecisive about tattoos i think if i had to get one i would shave a little bit of each side of my head and i'd get the html code for italics on each side in the correct order. So like the open one and the closed one on the other side of my thoughts. And then my hair would go back over it and I would know. And a few people would know no that my thoughts are in italics. And I need to be watched preferably from a safe distance. That is so good. I love that so much. The secret, obscure, wretched reference tattoos on the side of your head. It- I love yeah. it. I love it. And I'm, I'm like, do I do it? Because like, but then do I want to be associated with that character? Because I don't think yeah. like that, but I just think it would be a great quiet <laughs> nod to like a really good, clever quote. Mm. The other one that I've thought of, which is not a quote, is, I mean, if you've listened to the podcast, you know, you know, listener, I'm a big Doctor Who nerd. And I, I have often thought one of the ones I would get would be the seal of Rassilon, which is a symbol that appears many times in Doctor Who for different reasons, uh, but mostly as, you know, the sort of symbol of the Time Lords. And that's like, it's cool. It looks a bit like a Celtic knot. It's it's round. You could get it at a, a reasonable size on your arm somewhere. And I, what, what I have thought sometimes is that a good companion piece to that, maybe on the other arm in the similar spot, would be one of, and we haven't covered this book yet, so I won't go into it too much, but one of the symbols of the dark from dwarf culture, which we'll be discussing when, in our next episode when we talk about Thud, uh, there's lots of different variations on it, and I haven't quite, because I haven't reread the book for a while, I don't know which one exactly I would pick, but I do like those. Some of them it would be hard to get as a tad, I think, because they look too much like, because it's part of the point, some of them are visual jokes, they look too much like other things. So the one that most people get, I think, is either the summoning dark or the guarding dark. Again, I won't go into it too much, we'll talk about it next episode. But yeah, I've, I've also thought that that would make a nice sort of companion piece mm for probably my two biggest influential fandoms because I mean with because the other one would be a hitchhiker's inspired tat and what do you get? Like a ba- you could get lots of things. You could get a babel fish, you could get don't panic, you could get lots of things. But yeah, I think maybe one of those would be another good one. Where would you get the babel fish? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, because you'd be tempted to get it somehow on or yeah. near your ear. You could shave your that's, head. That's difficult. <laughs> I have to yeah, shave my head and get it like pointing down into my ear. Mm-hmm. I could oh I could get it under the sideburn. Yes. Shave my sideburn and get it pointing that might be a bit That'd over be the very top, painful cause, though because it's, it's over like, all of the joints. Yeah, I don't think I want to do that. I don't know. I don't know where you get it. Some good options. 
And then there's a question like, do you get the design from the TV show? Do you get the design from the film? I think you find an know. artist whose work you really love and then you sort of give them the brief and then you combine two different things. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. This is me deciding your yeah. tattoo for you. So, <laughs> Hopefully that's given you a few ideas, Chris. Uh, but do look on Instagram. And listener, if you've got a cool Discworld yes. tattoo or Perry Pratchett-inspired tattoo, it doesn't have to be from Discworld, please, if you're comfortable, if you're happy to, we would love mm. to see them. That would be really cool. Post a picture. Tag us on whatever social media platform you use. We'd love to see your cool Pratchett-inspired tats. All right, so the next question comes from Dr. Cat Day, who asked it on the podcast, so we're just going to listen to that now. What would you like to see in the sense of television adaptations and film adaptations? Which books would you like to see adapted? How would you like to see it approached? Would you like to see books done as kind of multi-series television shows? Would you like individual movies? How would you, how do you see that working and coming together? Yeah. And you know, when, when Kat asked this, I did say like, we kind of touched on this, but we haven't maybe really just gone the whole hog, but I've been thinking about it, Liz, and I know exactly what I would All right, want. Go for it. I do still think there's legs in the procedural crime drama set in Ankh Morpork mm. with the city watch where you would then gradually introduce a bunch of the other characters. Like, I think that you could still do that, but let's put mm. that aside because that's, Probably not happening anytime soon, given what did happen instead. And we will talk more about that in a future podcast at some point. I'm talking about the watch in case you've lost me completely there, listener. Sorry, don't mean to be (laughs) obscure. But what I reckon is you make a series of five films based on the Tiffany Mm -hmm. Aiken books. And the reason I think you make them as films is because then you can cast one actor who will age Mm -hmm. into the role. So you can cast her slightly too old for the first film or two. Then she'd be exactly the right age for the like the middle one, you know, and and also not just her, but you know the supporting characters as well, grow up through the films, because she gets quite a bit older, like she's at least a, a year or two older for most of them. Although I think the first two are quite close together, so you might have to film the first two together. But I think they would work really well as films. That's what I I think. If I could get anything done, I think it would be that. Or if it wasn't Discworld, Truckers. I feel like um, everyone has heard this from me before, and so I have two answers, and it possibly overlaps with another question. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see an Assassin's Guild television show, just um, all about the Assassin's Guild, kind of like a Mallory Towers in a Blighton boarding school kind of one, like even in the same sort of style, <laughs> but they're just learning how to do killings. Because I feel like the vibe is still the same because they are – if you read those books again, they're actually horrible to each other. Like, it truly seems like, so like someone does some terrible slight, like is a bit smug and they'll send them to Coventry, which is just where no one will talk to you for like a week because, yes. oh, you're a bit of a show off. Oh, Cause I remember being like, oh yeah, Gwendolyn, she's a terrible person. And I thought back over like all of the things like that made her a terrible person. And it was just, she just didn't quite fit in. She just, she didn't quite fit in. And that was, bad enough like that one of the girls would like keep a sketchbook full of her scowls and i'm like i'd be scowling too if my entire year level was consistently mean to me because of my personality i'm sorry i don't know if you've read those books but in the end she gets her comeuppance because her father has a stroke and she has to go home and look after him and it turns her into a nicer more grounded person less of a silly billy and i'm like excuse me Anyway, what I'm saying is Enid Blight and school books provide a perfect scaffolding for an assassin series that runs along the same lines because I think that would be very good television and also just very funny. Like, just, mm. yeah. I mean, 
I tried to think of a director who could do it. I think Taika Waititi would do an interesting job of that because that would be, <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And, and my other sort of spin-off version of that, like my other answer to what I'd like to see in an adaptation is origin stories. It's because I think adaptations do struggle, particularly ones of such loved works. People love Terry Pratchett. We love Terry Pratchett. That's why it made the watch so polarizing. Even like my, my feelings on it have mm. changed over time. And I think if you were to do something that looks at the origin stories of characters, like seeing Sybil as a young girl, um, in like for a prolonged period or Moise von Lipwig in his, um, con man days, things that were mentioned in the books, but were not overtly gone into would be a chance for people to build on what Pratchett built, like build, build on like the scaffolding, but not be treading on his same territory. So there wouldn't be the comparisons in the same way. So I think that would allow television or movies to be their own thing while still being true to the mm. source material. So I think that would be a good balance to get around some of the issues that come from adaptation of Pratchett's work. Yeah. Kind of like how the rings of power TV series is able to do a lot of its own stuff because it's set in an area of middle earth that is not minutely detailed. Like we, there's broad strokes of the big sort of events that happen, but what the actual characters were doing and how they related to each other and what the specific events were, he didn't write what those were. So there's a lot of room to mess with that and, and tell interesting stories and not step on what mm. is in the books. And I think your idea is great because like stuff set in a high school with some sort of weird twist is so popular mm-hmm. right now. Like you've got, you know, what's that new one? Vampire Academy. Deadly Class. Deadly oh. Class. There's the new Wednesday Adams show, which is set in the school that she's going to, which looks like it might actually be Umbrella good. Academy. To a degree. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's, it's, I think that's suggestive. It's the aftermath. It? Yeah. It's not, I mean, they're not really in an academy. You get flashbacks to yeah, their time. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that's really a great idea. Someone I please make it. it. I want to watch it. Like in all seriousness, like just please take my money. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. So the next question comes from Birdie the Doggo via Reddit. Don't know if you discussed it before, but I'd love to hear a debate on the best villains throughout Discord. Vorbis, Auditors, Mr. Tulip, and Mr. Pin. I mean, there's a lot to choose from. So. Cool. I will say, I don't think the auditors are the best. They're less a villain and more a sort of a implacable mm. force of nature. I think Terry was wise to only use them so many times because even like in the recent Science of Discworld 3 episode, I was like, we've seen this before. <laughs> like they, there's only so many things they can do. Can I just do a shout out mm. to the early book wizards who were just so cutthroat and murderous? Oh. And we often forget because the later wizards, mm. the, the ones that we love, are like the bumbling ones who are happy with their tenure. They're not trying to move up the ladder. They just want to have lunch. But when you read the early books where they're all going to war with each other, they are scary and they are true. They, they are villains. Mm. And the ones who sort of make their way through that I don't think are generally named all deny being there. And that is, that is real villain stuff. Like that's scary, insidious, hanging out, yeah. knowing that you've done some crimes, but I'm um, pretending you didn't stuff. So that's, I'm not saying they're the worst ones, but I think they're worth a mention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Trimon from The Light Fantastic, who's the second-in-command ambitious wizard, he's pretty but We forget that because, like, they come around into a whole sort of different... Like, wizards evolve into a different kind of character in later books. Yeah, I agree with that. I do really like... I mean, I hate him, which is why I like him as a villain. But I do really like the wizard Ipslaw the Red, who's Coin's dad, just because he's the worst dad. <laughs> he's just the worst, and I hate that so much. But it makes him really effective because he's got this personal connection that just ups the ante on everything that he does. 
So yeah, I quite like him as a worst villain. But then I also really like Reacher Guilt mm. because he's just cold blooded. The he's worst. Just, and he's very believable. He could absolutely come out of Discord and into Round yeah. World and he'd change his outfit and still be the same dude and still be a villain. Mm. Oh, and William's I was gonna dad. say, like, speaking of crap dads, uh, the word um, William's dad. Yeah, yeah. Word. He's in that he's in that list too. But he's more real world like he's a bit more like Reacher, yeah. As you say, he could also more or less step real succession areas so i think those are the characters that i i enjoy the most as villains and i hate them the most (laughs) i want them to fail but i also i like that personal connection whereas you know someone like trimon is good and he's got that connection through the wizards in a way but yeah i i don't feel Mm. that connection to him as much but i agree those early wizards terrifying how about you who else who else makes your list i was gonna say reach your guilt so thank you for stealing mine but I think no, it, it does come back sorry. to, for me, the scariest or the most effective villains are the ones that I could easily see stepping into our world. That's the ones that I find, mm. like, cause, but I mean, that's what he's doing on purpose, isn't it? Creating people who, like, it's, it's what Satire is. So I'm going to stick with Reacher Guilt, even though, like, it's like ordering the same thing at lunch, isn't it? We can both enjoy the same terrible villain. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. I mean, I also do really like most of, I mean, there's lots of them, but. Uh, most of the villains in Nightwatch are up there. Less so Carter himself. He's fine as a villain, but he's sort of also, in many ways, he's kind of your run-of-the-mill psychopath. Fictional psychopath, I mean, in that he just enjoys killing and he's a total jerk. I, I think more so, like, you know, like the old patrician, the new patrician, find the swing, the leader of the oh, unmentionables. Him, yeah. Like, all of those characters are horrifying. And again, yeah, they they could be real. Actually, no, there was another one I had. Who was the veterinary assistant who turned out to be... Oh, Lupine Wants. Yeah. I think he was... From Guards, Guards. He was an interesting one because, you know, he gets up to a high echelon of power and abuses it. Again, not the most callous or dastardly of them, but I think, again, it's like the banality of evil. Again, the ones that are just sort of quietly bad and could do things well or do things for the betterment of people and Mm. don't those ones get me yeah anyone who who pushes those buttons to get people to go along with them you know like we talked about him on the podcast before you know the way that he kind of is appealing to you know he's preying on people who are vulnerable and pointing them at other vulnerable people for his own gain and the parallels that we see with that in the real world make him kind of yeah really detestable Mm. so yeah i think he's up there too Mm. So I, I, we can't pick no. just one. They're like you wrote too many like, good ones. We can't or do it. Too many bad ones. Yeah, and there's more to come. All right. So the next question comes from Robin of the Who Watches the Watch podcast. Have you read any Rincewind fan fiction? I'm going to answer this. No, and I'm afraid to. <laughs> I also have not. I. It's interesting that I have read. So when when I was getting into fandom when I was in high school, it was all through fanzines. Right, the internet was either not invented or not accessible. Uh, until I was sort of finishing high school, because yes, I'm old. So the only fan fiction I read was the kind of stuff that got printed in sort of more mainstream fanzines that you could get. And it wasn't what we traditionally now think of as fan fiction, where people are sort of getting into, you know, relationships. It wasn't slash fic. It wasn't like romantic. It was plot stuff. You know, it was like, let's think up some cool plot situations and put our favorite characters in them. And yeah, they had stuff like crossovers between series and characters meeting who'd never met before. But no one at the time seemed to be writing much in the way of Discworld fan fiction. And maybe that was just because there was so much Discworld coming out at the time. This is like mid-90s, was peak Discworld production period. 
So nobody felt the need to write much of it back then, or at least if they did, it wasn't getting published in any fanzines that I was reading, you know, that I could get my hands on in <laughs> rural Australia. So I had didn't read any then, and I never got into online fan fiction in the same way, but I was sort of aware of it, and I've occasionally sort of dabbled in it. And when I read this question, I was like, yeah, I haven't. What do they write about? And I looked it up, and there's an awful lot of rinse flour which, if you're not familiar... I'm not shocked. Uh, no, I'm not shocked either. It makes perfect sense. I mean, they spend so long travelling around together, just the two of them and the luggage. Not ruggage? <laughs> no, I don't see any ruggage. I feel like that would... Like, I feel ruggage. like that's like rinse flour, yes, is the way you'd go. And then I feel I thought there'd be like a niche mm. pocket of ruggage. Yeah. Lintzwind. Let's unpack some fan fiction terms. Fic can mean fiction in general or be short for story. Slash fiction, slash fic, or just slash, is the genre of writing two characters getting it on, so-called because the characters' names would be listed separated by a slash, like Kirk slash Spock, the earliest known example from the 1970s. Shipping is being a fan of a particular relationship between fictional characters. A pairing of characters is commonly named by blending the characters' names together, though some do get special names, like Aziraphale and Crowley, the ineffable husbands. Yeah, I don't know. There's got to be... Like a whole lot of, uh, oh, yeah, he's he's got his pear wood. Is there rinse... Do you think there'd be rinse cully? Or maybe rinse wind and ponder stibbons, I could see. No. I could see them kind of, like, commiserating. Rid cully's always picking on them. and But also, rinse wind and just a potato is, like, the <laughs> canonical... <laughs> um, that's the only thing he's ever interested in. So, uh, but you wouldn't write fanfic. Well, I guess you could write fanfic about that, but you probably wouldn't. Um, yeah, so to answer the question, no, but I probably will now because I've started looking into it and I want to know more. So the next question comes from Chaz of Who Watches the Watch podcast. What do you think would happen if veterinary died and people could queue to see his body? So for some context, if you're listening <laughs> to this after, a long way after we recorded this, it's only recently mm. that Queen Elizabeth II died and there was the huge thing about the queue where people lined up for 15, 20 hours to see her body, including David Beckham, who apparently lined up in the proper line for 15 hours to file past her body as it was in state and pay his respects. Mm. I mean, I'm assuming that's the source of this, or maybe that's just how we, we normally think about it. Yeah. Or I got so obsessed with the queue, I'm sorry, like that brief cultural <laughs> moment of weird like I read the live tweets of this woman and her mother in it. Did you watch that um that TikTok or Twitter of the guy who did a little musical of the queue? It was just so good. No. <laughs> it's like do you want a calippo son? No, I shan't out of respect. <laughs> Oh, God. Look, I think that the people of Ankh-Morpork are written to be so British and that it's seen as a very British thing to do to just get in a queue and be patient and polite and obey rules. Dibbler would absolutely be selling merch along the queue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he'd be walking up and down the queue selling Mm. stuff. I reckon. I I think he would walk because it would move very slow. I'm sorry, but like just before we get into our proper answer... The whole time, like, when I was pondering this question, I'm like, veterinary's not really dead in this scenario. He has concocted this as a thing, and he's watching from, like, a high tower to see what would happen so that he can, like, <laughs> make some decisions about how to do some other situation. So he is not dead in this scenario to me, just to, just to put that out there. Sure. Look, I think if, whether or not he's dead, I think there's a strong element where one of the things that Dibbler is selling to people in the queue is sticks so that when you get in there you can poke him to see if he really is dead and i think that the watch would have to be stationed in there to try and stop people doing that or they wouldn't carrot on a 40 hour shift but it might be in his will to say people can do it yeah carrot would just stay there in our scenarios when we've imagined this we've we've often suggested that it feels to us like the natural successor 
and possibly purposefully groomed to be his successor mm. would be Moist von Lipwig to take yeah. over. You know, having built up all these credentials of doing all these things in the city, he would let people poke the partition a little bit. But I think he would make it policed so that not everyone, like, sort of poked the body in the same spot and caused a problem. Like, everyone would have to poke a different bit. Well, it wouldn't the be body. the real body. I mean, there's all the conspiracy theories about, like, the queen was not in the coffin, etc. Like, there's always <laughs> conspiracy theories, but, like, yeah. <laughs> It's a clone grown by an Igor. I just think that veterinary would be like, okay, my time is done. Here is my death scare quotes around that. Here is the body scare quotes. Like, I think mm. he'd just retire but say that he's dead and so they'd arrange it so that it seemed like it. I agree with you that he'd probably let them. I think Moist, if he does take over, would let the people get their feelings out in different ways but not in a disrespectful way, so like in their most ankh-morpork of ways. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I do think that the Ankh-Morpork queue would get its own clax address in the same way that the real-life queue had its own Twitter account. Yeah, but... Absolutely. People would be people would be sending clax messages saying how long you had to wait in the queue. There would be so much queue. But yeah, and there'd also just there'd be the nefariousness of adding magic and things to it. And, you know, who's the equivalent of politicians mm. and things? Because there's all that anger about people cutting the queue. So it's like, I feel like Rid Cully would queue up properly. Like, he would stand in the queue out of... You reckon? Yeah, because he his whole thing is fitness, and, like, I reckon he would actually properly do it. But he also, like, strongly believes, like most of the wizards, that he's a wizard and he's more important than the Hoi Polloi and he should get to go to the front of the line. Yeah, but I think... Like, I think he still thinks that. I think he'd think that, but I also think that he would... There's two competing prides here, right? Like, I'm better than you, but also, like, I mm. have the stamina... And I'm the the most like respectful that I can stand in the queue, and I feel like that would win in Rid Cully. Now I'm imagining him being in one of those ridiculous like prize giveaways where like you've got to keep your hand on the car until you're the last one standing. Mm. That he would just do it out of principle. But I don't know. This see, this is the thing. Rid Cully is a great character because he's full of contradictions. Because he would see that situation as absolutely ridiculous and not want to participate, but at the same time would feel that he had to show that he mm. was capable of doing it. And I don't know which way he would go, but I believe either way, mm. you know, and that that would be a tension in him. So, yeah, maybe you're right. He would stand in the queue. The witches, um, I don't know if they'd pay their tax at all, but if they wanted to, they'd use some timey-wimey magic to do it without having to queue, but without looking like they're skipping the queue. I reckon Nanny and Granny would just walk in. They'd just walk to the head of the queue. And just walk in like they own the place and no one would stop them. I feel Nanny like, would. It, it, I mean, I don't think they would do it in the first place. Nanny would, you reckon, but maybe not Granny. Granny would either not be there or, yeah, I, Nanny would. Mm. Well, if she was invited to go, she would go. But if she had to just barge in, she would probably just be like, no. Which is basically what happens at the royal wedding in Kappa Yagulam, but you know, that's Would Sybil queue? I reckon Sybil would queue. It's the right thing to do, and then Vines would do it because they because ha- she's doing it. Otherwise, he wouldn't at all. I don't know. I think that, well, I think there's an argument to be made that Sybil wouldn't queue because she's high nobility. She'd be invited to go and pay her respects alongside Sam, but then she would attend the queue and make sure people in the queue were looked after. Hmm. That strikes me as the Sybil way. To or do she'd it. at least set a flock of Emmas on them to bring tea and things. Yeah, well, I think absolutely she'd do that, but she'd be Press there off. overseeing it. She'd be like, all oh, these people, like, handing out parasols and stuff if it was sunny. Yeah, so I guess the answer to that is, yes, people would queue to see his body, and there'd be all manner of different degrees of corruption <laughs> of how much queuing they did, if at all. 
This is giving me flashbacks to the 30th episode. Well, maybe it was another episode after that, but someone asked, you know, what would have lockdown in Ankh-Morpork be like? <laughs> but I think, yeah, this is good. Thank you, by the way, to um, one of our many sibling podcasts who also discuss the Discworld. Thank you, Who Watches the Watch, for these questions. Uh, we've got a few more coming up from some of the other podcasts, but I would love to see a headcanon tweet thread from the Truth Shumaki fret, because they do some really good ones of what they reckon mm. would happen. So I'm throwing this over to you, Joanna, Francine. We'll get to your questions in a minute, but the, I'm throwing it over to you. What would all the characters do if they had to queue to see Veterinary's body? Speaking of fellow podcast, you want to do this next question? Oh, yeah. The very next one. This is from Al at uh, Desert Island Discworld, who are currently, as we record this, halfway through their seventh season. Um, so who watches the watch? Uh, reading the Discworld books, commenting on them. They do multiple episodes per book. Check them out. They're great. Very different vibe to our podcast is probably fair for us to say, so may or may not be your cup of tea, but give them a try. Um, Desert Island Discworld is an interview podcast where somebody comes on, they talk about their work, their life, and then discusses one of their favorite, if not their absolute favorite, Discworld book that they would take with them onto a desert island. Sometimes it's not a Discworld book. But anyway, so he, that's been going on for a while, and this is Al's question. Al asks, where in Round World have you been to that most made you think, this looks just how I imagine Ankh-Morpork or Lanka or any other Discworld location looking. So where have you been to in, in our world that reminded you strongly of a Discworld location? See, I hate that when I saw this for the first time, everywhere I thought of was just various pubs. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, what's the most like the Mended drum? And nothing is exactly like that, but there's um here, there's a, uh-huh. like in Melbourne, there's a place called um the Sherlock Holmes, which is kind of like a sort of, basementy English pub kind of thing, very crowded, classic English pub, but a bit, little bit dingy but nice and fun. And in Adelaide, there's a place called The Exeter, which is similar but a little bit more dingy. I went there all through my uni years, and whenever I go back, I always visit there <laughs> because I just love it. It's just it's an institution. And I feel like aesthetically mm. not the same, but the vibe of just like the watering hole where people gather – those two capture the feeling that I get whenever I hear, like, see a scene in the mended drum where everyone's just sort of like gathering on their place. So it's not so much about aesthetics, it's about feeling. Those two places to me sort of feel right for that atmosphere. Yeah. Speaking of pubs, there was a pub in Fitzroy I don't, or a bar. I don't know if it's still there. It used to be called Kaz Rytop's Dirty Secrets. I think now it's just called Dirty Secrets. They had a really old school bluestone basement there where I did a comedy show many, many years ago. And it feels a bit like an old school dungeon. And I think that that is one of the first places I think of, certainly in Melbourne that I've been to. I mean, there are many places that I've lived in and, and visited around Australia that remind me of the things that the last continent is parading because that's really what some of those towns are like, you know. But when I went to London, and I've only been once, there were lots of bits that I'm like, oh, okay, I kind of get this. Like, you know, there are bits of London, you walk around a corner, and now you're walking on, like, old cobblestones. Or you walk down parts of the footpaths near the Thames, and there's this, all these old buildings. Like, I remember going past the original clink, where the name comes from for the old prison, and looking at some of those buildings and going, this is what Ankh-Moor Port looks like. This is it. And going to the, you know, the recreation of the Globe Theatre and thinking, yeah. And that, it, as much as it made me think Shakespeare, it also made me think of, well, the, the dwarf playwright and, and all of those characters. So I think because it is so drawn so much from sort of quintessential Britishness, 
Yeah, there's a lot of London in there, and that made me think of it. By Still in a Token, um, there's a show, um, it's, it's quite internationally known, so if you're outside of Australia, you might know it. It's called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, filmed in Melbourne. Mm. I started watching it when I lived in Adelaide, and I've been obsessed with it. They've stopped making it. They make movies from time to time, but they use a lot of locations around Melbourne that cause set in the 20s and 30s, and there's buildings around here that still sort of retain some of those features. I will be out and about and I'll be like, that's from Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries or like that. Oh, I, I recognize that. Like the, in Carlton, there's a lot of places where you're like, well, that, they've used the exterior of that or there's this place called, um, Trades Hall and Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries absolutely mm-hmm. love the hell out of that location because they do. Oh yeah. It's been like six different places. Yeah. They're like, this Fisher. is a newspaper thing. This is someone's house. This is someone's office. And I'll be like, no, that's Trades Hall. That, that's Trades Hall again. Oh, and that's Trades Hall. And they'd be like, no, it's a different yep. thing. So I've enjoyed spotting that over the time that I've lived here. But I've also gone out of my way to go seek out some of the locations because I am just that level of a dork. And there's this place called Rip on Lee where they, again, have used it multiple times from different angles for different sets. But it's basically this old, very fancy manor house that I think back in the day was owned by a very wealthy family and was on huge acres of land. That's how I imagine Vimes' house, like whenever I'm reading the book, because it is kind of inspired by the British style old houses, because that's um, who was moving over here and building those things back then. And it's just this sprawling mansion that you could absolutely put a bunch of booby traps in, but it's dark and it has like fancy expensive things in it. And you can just a hundred percent imagine like a butler going through it and also just, um, traps for assassins to like fall through the roof into and tread water or not quite water. <laughs> so that that's another place I've been yeah. like this this could be Vimes' house or it could be William de Ward's house like cuz it is those classic fancy people's accommodation because it is. Yeah, that's cool. So the next question comes from UL Vinagre via Facebook. If you could have any item on our real world made out of sapient pear wood, what would it be? For me, it would be definitely be my phone. Mm-hmm. It'd always follow me even when I lose it and it could have an aggressive personality like luggage. So I could reply to all my work messages and emails. I mean, I love that answer. I would love. An- this is such a good question. Oh, but what a good answer. Can you imagine getting an email from the luggage? <laughs> <laughs> what would it just be like a mouth emoji? No, because I think it'd be translated into like what we need. But it'd just be like that sort of terse. Oh, yeah. Um, we're done here. Here's the information you need to know. Please don't reply to me. It's over. There, there we go. <laughs> Oh, that is so good. That's yeah. really good. Oh, it's difficult to make some things out of wood, but I reckon I kind of want it to be my laptop, but I don't know if that's that useful. Maybe. No, no. I changed my mind. My bicycle. Mm. I wish my bicycle was made of sapient pear wood because then it would be like a cool, friendly horse. And no one could steal it ever. Follow me around. It's tires would never go flat. Yeah. No one would steal it. I wouldn't have to keep it locked up. If I got tired, it could help me out by pedaling for me. If you parked it somewhere, then walked somewhere, it would come to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's my answer. My bicycle. What about you, Liz? So that's a great answer. Mine is um, the most tedious answer of all. Cause I, I sat there and I thought about this for a long time. Like, okay, what would be really good? And I, I was like, okay, what would I need most? And after long deliberation, I came up with some kind of chest that follows you around you just want yeah. a luggage. You want yeah, because I luggage. hate carrying things because I'm like, I, there's something about my shoulders that doesn't allow bags to sit on it, so it just rolls off. Backpack, like, is why I couldn't do the Amazing Race because I spent uh-huh. the whole time complaining about my backpack. If I had a luggage that would follow me around and also, like, fight people, perfect. No notes. To put a round-world spin on it, though, would you want a luggage 
that was cabin baggage sized. I mean, not that any of us are getting on planes that often at the moment or at all in some of our cases, but would that be the ideal? Yes, because, um, and I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast before and if it makes me look like a terrible person, but, um, there's a thing about flights where I don't know if it's, if it's longer than three hours, I always mentally end up with a flight nemesis. <laughs> like just someone on there who's, okay. who's so that you're like, that person is my enemy. They've usually done like nothing wrong, but it's just there's something uh-huh. about the way they're behaving. Like maybe they've taken off their shoes in the wrong way, or maybe <laughs> their seat is backed into mine, which they're perfectly oh, entitled no. to do. Like it's not because they are a terrible person and I am great. It's just I think yeah. when you're cooped up in a small space with a whole bunch of people that you wouldn't normally spend a lot of time with, someone ends up capturing your attention and you're like, that person is my enemy. <laughs> and you want your luggage to eat them. Is that what you want? I want to know that my luggage could eat them. Okay. And I think that would be enough. It's just kind of like if they get the last meal that you want because they're like two rows ahead and you know how there's like a finite amount of the different meals. And yeah. if you're like near the back, you get like the worst one because there's like 15 <laughs> of those left and everything else is gone. Um, yeah, okay. And it's not their fault because they're just choosing the meal they want or they're reclining their seat as they're allowed to or they're taking off their shoes because it's comfortable even though like really you should just wear flip-flops if that's your problem like like I do. But, you know, um, or they're not wearing headphones or they um, shifted everyone's luggage along a bit too roughly when they put theirs up there. Like there's a lot of reasons that someone could be your airline nemesis. And every time I brought this Absolutely. up, everyone's been like, what are you talking about? You're a terrible person. And I don't know why I keep putting this out in the world. <laughs> in the hope that someone is like me. If you are like me and you end up having an airline nemesis, please reach out um, and then we can just <laughs> complain about people who've done nothing wrong together. But yeah, Compare coping strategies. What a great question. All right, so the next question comes from the IUMe via Twitter. What is your favorite supplementary Discord material? So maps, diaries, comic versions, like any supplementary material. I kind of have two answers for this. Probably more than two, actually. I mean, I do really love the video games. Not that I've played all of them, but I particularly love the first one because I was really big into that sort of style of point-and-click adventure. And while fiendishly difficult and had all the problems that those games had at the time, it was pretty entertaining and pretty great. So I'll put that one out there. But I think really I've got two faves. One for sentimental reasons, which is the Unseen University Diary. It's the first one from 1998 because it was one of the earliest bits of Discworld stuff that I bought that I hung on to and I just, I just have a sentimental attachment to it. But the other one that I really love is just all the maps because I love the fact that they were drawn after the books. And so they're not, they weren't like, let's plan out the world. It was like, how do we put what we put in the books onto a map? I'm a nerd. I like a book that has a map in the front cover, but I, I like it better that it came from the story than that it determined the story. That was a great answer. Mine is something we've touched on before i really and i don't know if this is allowed legally within the realms of the question but i enjoy fan art and seeing how other people have put pratchett's words through their minds and then put it mm-hmm. into their own interpretation like that's something that i always really enjoy because it's always so different to what you're thinking but sometimes it lines up exactly and you're like someone else's brain has come up with a thing like mine and there you go or it gives you a new perspective on mm. on something that you thought that you had a solid grasp on, but it puts it in a whole new light. So I always really enjoy seeing fan art because it's a way of seeing what people like you are thinking in a different way. The other answer to that is also I really enjoy the graphic novel versions of things, especially The Last Hero. I don't know if that counts as well because it is like what the book is, but I really think... I mean, it's the only version, right? <laughs> yeah, is it the only version? Because I don't know. Like, Yeah, it is. Okay, great. 
then it's not supplementary material, and I withdraw my answer. <laughs> I'm it's sorry, just material. I didn't mean to disqualify your answer. I, no, uh, I already gave an answer, and I shouldn't be greedy for answers. So, um, well, see, but see, but you say that, and I was just about to say, look, there's other things that I could put on this list too. I, I am a big sucker for in-universe objects, that sort of thing where you take something from fiction and you make it in the real world. And mm. there's so many good ones. This is why I, lo- I love the stamps. The stamps are so cool. I don't, I don't know what you use them for. I guess you just put them on letters. It's a bit of fun, but they're so great that they make those and a lot of the other stuff as well. Yeah, I really like that kind of stuff, mm. but I'll stick with my original answers. Here's a question from Joel, which came by Discord. Um, not a theory, but I keep thinking a lot about the change from magic to science that runs through the Discord and how much that is conscious from Terry um, or if it's just a change in his interest. Do do we see this change? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying not to be too influenced as we answer these questions, Liz, by the biography <laughs> that I think we both just have or are currently reading. But I think his interests were always there. And, you know, he started out writing science fiction and then switched mm. to fantasy. And he always talks about science fiction being a kind of fantasy. I think the quote was, science fiction is fantasy with <laughs> rivets bolted on the outside or something like that. So I think his interests were always that way. But maybe he he just found new ways to bring those interests into the successful books that he was writing. Yeah, and I think maybe perhaps he was originally very much set on an idea of what he wanted his books to be. And so over time, mm. you just get free of that when you, like, you've built your own world and you can be comfortable in it. So it just naturally shifts as well. Like, cause you might be like, okay, well, I've got to plan out everything. Mm. I'm doing a very specific thing. So I have to like tick this, this, this and this box to make sure it like, fits the genre conventions of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So maybe that also factored in. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Joel also pointed out that, you know, the Discworld is not the first fantasy world to do this, to kind of evolve towards a more science-y, science-fictional outcome. But yeah, I I think it was on purpose. Like, I think he enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah. I think it was interest shifting and also just getting comfortable. So we're not quite on the same page, but okay. I think there's a point each way. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. That makes mm. sense. If there's one thing we've learned from rereading a lot of Pratchett, it's that he never threw away an idea or refused to use it again. You know, like he he loved to keep things around or, or give them a second go. And I think naturally that sort of led to things coming into the disc world that maybe started as ideas from somewhere else. Mm. That's probably an element of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way of exploring things that were interesting him at the time. But look, those are all of our Discworld specific questions. Thank you, everyone who sent those in. They were great. This is where we stray a bit further out into the waters of the general Pratchett universe. Uh, so please do stay with us if you're a listener who often just sticks around for the Discworld stuff, because this will, there'll be some Discworld content in this too. Liz, I want to start with a really contentious one from this category, though, or potentially contentious. Mm. It's probably fine. Pretentious. Pret- <laughs> no. Uh, well, it could be. I don't know. Rin Betancourt, long-time listener, has sent us many good questions. Thank you, Rin. We've got a couple more from you, I know, too. But you wanted to know, Rin, what is our least favorite Pratchett book and why? And we kind of did answer this, I think, 30 episodes ago, but we've read a lot more Pratchett books again since then. So this answer may have changed. And I said we'd, we'd give it another crack. Um, oh. Do you have one, Liz? Is this an easy one for you to answer? It was so easy. I was like, yeah, Science of Discworld 2. <laughs> yeah, look, you know what? I feel like that might be my new contender. And it feels a bit mean because like, the fiction part of it was actually fine. It was it yeah. was good, but the nonfiction part, yeah, mm. just really didn't. It was did a tough read. Dig it. it was it was hard to read. 
And yeah, yeah so it's easy answer for me for that one. That's my new by far least favorite. <laughs> but that's not really fair because the bit that Pratchett wrote, presumably, like the fiction bit, like he probably he contributed. You know, we can't divide it up. So there we go. That's it. Uh, I think we can a bit. I think we can. I'm trying um, to be but... fair to the book that I hate. <laughs> You don't have to be fair. You're allowed to have feelings about it. Look, I mean, I think, you know, even the worst Pratchett books, I've still quite enjoyed. Like, I didn't, they they were not a, they should know our velocity. I didn't want to throw them across the room. Signs of Discord 2, a little bit, like some parts of that book, I was like, no, why? And again, it was partly because I was so disappointed because I really like those authors. I've liked their other work, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably, that's probably it for me too. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Sorry, Science Squad 2, but we hate you. Yeah. We didn't like your central thesis, and we didn't like the way you went about it. And we didn't like how Sorry. boring you were, and it was just bad. Yeah, which is a shame, because I think there's definitely... The basic idea of that book, if you haven't read it, which is, you know, that storytelling is what makes humans different from other animals, is a really interesting take. But that I just made it worse, because the, way... the premise was so good, and the execution was terrible. <laughs> so, like, if you had a terrible premise, yeah. and the execution was terrible, that would have been less bad. Yeah, the way they talk about that and the reasons that they sort of push it, we didn't like. But thankfully, you know, they redeem themselves quite a lot mm-hmm. in the third one. And so I am tentatively excited about the fourth one. You can so have a dud we'll one. That's, a, that's okay. So Yeah, one dud one out of four. That's fine. That's fine. The first one's good too. We don't know it's out of four. <laughs> one dud one out of three. We'll see how we well, go. That's true. It's one dud one out of three so far. Mm. So, next question comes from Manning of the podcast Weird Sisters. What's your favorite footnote? Oh, Manning. Now, Weird Sisters are the third podcast to have gone through and read every single Discworld book. First one being Radio Morpork, second one being Death of Podcasts. Uh, but Manning, thank you so much for this question. The reason I think Manning asked this, one of the features of their show, and I don't think they did this every episode, I think they started doing it around Reaper Man or, or thereabouts, but they did a listener poll of what's your favorite footnote from this book? And then for their wrap-up episode, they did, out of all the ones that won through those polls, what is your favorite footnote? And I don't actually know which one won because I haven't listened to their wrap-up episode yet because we haven't finished rereading all the books yet and I haven't read them all. Um, so I don't want to spoil myself. Yeah. But I did go back and look at through some of the footnotes, which are mostly in the Discworld books. Perhaps you didn't actually use a lot of footnotes in other books. But did you find a favorite? So I racked my brain to see if there's one that just fell in from from memory, from like a fiction, because I generally just enjoy every time a footnote comes up, I'm like, joy, a footnote, I get to read this. And I found <laughs> none of them stuck out for me. So I Googled what Terry Pratchett footnotes there were, and I came across a Reddit thread where people were talking about their favorite footnotes. And it was one of those, like, when you fall into a what serial killers have done, what crimes <laughs> sort of spirals where I was just like, yes, that one, yes, that one, like everyone's favorite one. I was kind of like, yes, that's my favorite. Yeah. No, that's my new favorite. They're mostly all good, like the ones that he will raise, but going through them, and this is going to seem like a real cop out because it's the first one in the thread for me. It's the one about the typo between gold and glod and the dwarves. Oh, yeah. And how they end up with a whole lot of grumpy short people because there's <laughs> creating more glod. It, that's. Because it's just, that could be its own book or like a short story at the very least. And it's just crammed into a footnote. Yeah. So I don't have a favorite, but I did enjoy that one because it that brings together good. a lot of the different things I enjoy about Terry Pratchett, which is wordplay and silly puns and just taking a concept way too far while also introducing fantasy creatures. So it's a lot of elements come together in that one to become a perfect thing. Yeah. 
Look, I, I similarly, I found it really hard to pick one favorite because I kept looking them up and going through them. And if you, if you want to review them, a really good way to do it is if you have the ebook versions of any of the mm. books, they usually actually collect the footnotes as end notes so that they don't interrupt the text. And that makes it easy to look at them all in one place. But I, yeah, there were so many good ones, but I, uh, I have a soft spot for two kinds I found. I mean, there's lots of others that I really like, but I really like the ones that kind of like the Glod one introduce an idea that he will reuse later on in a bigger way. So Glod Glodson becomes a character in, in, in soul music. They don't directly reference the fact that there's a lot of other Glods, but we, we know, we know where he's from. I mean, his name references that, right? So there's those ones. And like, you know, the one from, I think it's Reaper Man where there's the footnote that mentions the amazing Maurice, which then becomes a whole book later on and very soon a film. So I like those ones, but I also just really like some of the really early ones where he's just really using the footnotes to skewer things like the one in uh, the light fantastic, which is the explanation for the weird little magic shop. I really like that. Then the shop turns up later on in the book. So it's setting something up in that book. But I also like the ones, I, I said there were two, there's three really. I also really like the ones that are a gag that then gets referred to in the main text. Yes. And it's too hard to find a specific one. But there was one, and it's actually really early. I think it's in Mort or maybe Sorcery. It's in one of those early ones, which we kind of mentioned because it gets referenced in the Science of Discworld 3, which is the one that defines the Thorm as the basic unit of magic. And it's defined as enough magic to make one small dove or one or two billiard balls disappear. I forget what the exact one is, but I really like that one as well. But there's so many. I can't. There's too too many good ones. He just smashed out a lot of good ones. There's like 60 of them or 80 of them or something ridiculous in one book alone. Okay. Yeah. I was like, there's not 60 or 80. There's like hundreds. Come on. But yeah. No, I mean, I know one book book alone. I was kind of ready to, (laughs) you know, Hey, wait, do you want to know how many there are in total? Of course, I want to know that. I love numerical values and things. Because I think I can tell you. I can tell you, though I needed to fill in a few blank cells in my spreadsheet first. By my count, the Discworld novels contain 718 footnotes. The only other novel with footnotes is Dodger, with 11, bringing the total for his novels to 729. The four science books have 273 footnotes, though many of those are of the C Book X variety. But if we also add in the 16 footnotes from the folklore of Discworld, we have a grand total of 1,018 footnotes. Though I've just realised that doesn't include any from the short stories. Watch this space. That feels right. The next questions come from Carl Zalek via email. So, which other Pratchett books you consider to be underrated? It's Masquerade for Carl. Mm, That's a good question. May I answer this first? Yeah, go for it. I'm going to say, I I thought about this for a long time, but I'm going to go with... The long series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This might come up a bit later if we have time to get to some of your answers to our questions as well. But Riley pointed out we were maybe a little harsh on the long Mars, but I do really like them. They're not like other books. Mm. You know, they're not like other parallel universe books. They're not like a lot of modern science fiction. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good call. Yeah. Any one in particular or just the series as a whole? No, the series at large, because like, as you mentioned, we didn't love the Long Mars. And I feel like a lot of that falls on the fact that the name is misleading and it's also like mostly exposition and nothing happens. But probably I feel like the thing with this is that you have to look at them as a whole rather than as individual books because they don't function like Discworld where you can just sort of pick up around. I think you need to read mm. them all in order and it is a long commitment, but they are very underrated <laughs> because they're very original. The world building is done very well 
and you do invest in it. So the fact that one book was a little bit not on par with some of the others in terms of how punchy it was, that's okay because I kind of see them as one super long book rather mm. than as a series of books in a series. They're all just long chapters is how I prefer yeah. to see it. I agree. I agree. I find it hard to pick a Discworld one because I think every Discworld book is somebody's favorite with the possible exception of Eric. <laughs> Poor old Eric. Eric is uh, good. It's got good it's, fun. Bits. it's got good bits. It's still fun. It's not great in some ways, it's but it's, good. I take that good, but yeah, <laughs> it's fun. It's, fu- it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I don't even necessarily think it's the worst one. I probably, I mean, I didn't say this for your question, Rin, but I probably dislike interesting times more, but it's even that still got some good bits in it. But in terms of which one is underrated, I think the Bromeliad doesn't get enough. I mean, I think all of Pratchett's children's books are great. I love all of them. Johnny books, so good. No reservations. Yeah, all the Johnny books, all the Trucker's books, Dodger, Nation, which we know he thought was his work of genius, and the Carpet People. Maybe the Carpet People. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know. But those books I really love. And I think Trucker's doesn't. The trilogy doesn't get enough love. And I think Diggers in particular, people tend not to talk about much. They, they, people often talk about truckers. They don't talk about Diggers and Wings as much. And I think Diggers is actually really good. I don't even know if it's my favorite of the three. So I like all of those books. I'd like to leap forward a little bit to a question from Fron Dishlock at Fron36 mm-hmm. via Twitter, which is why doesn't the Long Earth series get the attention it deserves? Oh, Yeah, because I think that ties in with what we've been talking about. Yeah. I, I love Fron's comment too that goes with this question. Fronty said, uh, I want a lavish guidebook illustrating the various sentient races, technology, twains. I read this where, on Twitter and I was like, yeah, mm. like I've got this book. I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast. I got one of them in a secondhand bookshop and I tracked down a copy of the other one because I was so into it. There was this thing called Barlow's Guide to Fantasy and then there was a Barlow's Guide to Science Fiction as well. And it's just this illustrator just picking their favorite fantasy and sci-fi novels and illustrating characters and creatures mostly from those books. And I love that because it was so cool. And I want that, I agree, for The Long Earth, because there are so many cool things in those books. And that's kind of their point. You know, it's a weird travelogue through all these alternate versions of what could have been on Earth and later on Mars. And and we haven't got to these books yet, but I'm sure later in other places too. And I would love that. I think maybe it hasn't got the attention it deserves because it is, and this is, you know, I've been thinking about this since the third one. It's very old school sci-fi. It's about the ideas. It's about the concepts. It's not about the plot. It's not about the characters as much. They are kind of a vehicle for us to experience the ideas behind the book, which is a very old school sci-fi thing to do, you know? And it requires a big investment. Yeah. In a way that Discworld does not, like as in like we are, of course, very invested in Discworld, like we have a whole yes. podcast dedicated to Terry Pratchett, which is sparked by a love of Discworld, even though we have delved into his other books. But I think for something like the long series, none of the characters are anywhere near as individually compelling as any of the Discworld characters. You have to buy into the concepts. You have to commit to reading a long book in a long series. And mm. it's worth it when you do. But I think when there's so many books out there and when it is, like it is actively competing with Discworld, like sure, it's an entry point. I'm sure the fact that Terry Pratchett wrote half of it or however much percentage of it he wrote helps get readers into it. It is still kind of competing with it. And I know Joss Whedon, terrible person, we found out, um, used to be a hero of mine, very disappointing how he turned out to be. Hmm. When he did Buffy, I loved it. When he 
sort of veered off the final season to do Firefly, I'm like, well, I will not watch this because he should be doing Buffy and Angel. And when I finally watched Firefly, I was like, actually, this is great and I'm really enjoying it. I don't know if other people have, mm. again, this is my like, do other people have a flight nemesis? I was kind of like, I was inclined to not like Firefly because it was taking the person away from the thing that I thought they should be working on that yeah. was better in my mind when actually it was equally good in a different way. I, I think absolutely that's a big part of it, for sure. Like, people know Terry Pratchett for comic fantasy, and the long series is neither fantasy nor especially comic. Mm. You know, I mean, it is fantasy in the broader sense of fantasy that Terry liked to talk about a lot, but it is much more science fiction book in, in the sense that, I don't know, this is the thing as we record this that's been doing the rounds on Twitter about what the difference between them is. But I, I think <laughs> if there is a useful <laughs> distinction, fantasy is kind of stuff that could never happen and and science fiction is a bit more stuff that maybe could kind of happen, like, but hasn't or wouldn't. The most recent one I read was fantasy was when they drop Irish Gaelic words in it from time to time and sci-fi is when there's Japanese text around the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll pay that. Although I do want this one's sweary, but I thought it was very good. Someone said fantasy is when you want to fuck an elf. <laughs> Science fiction is when you want to fuck a robot. And then someone else said, what steampunk? And someone else said, that's when you want to fuck a train. And I'm like, that's, that's perfect. It's done. The debate is over. Sorry, yeah, I got a bit sorted. coarse there, folks, but it was very funny. It was worth it. We are an um, Australian podcast no, after all. Yeah, I think you're okay with that. All right. Well, I, I think we answered that. Mm. But that's good. I think we're giving those books their due. And I am excited. I, I mean, if if you got to the end of our Long Mars episode and you thought, I don't know if these people want to see how it ends, I absolutely no, do. I'm, in fact, in. if anything, I'm more keen to see what happens next. Yeah. So we'll be back. Don't worry. We're going back to those books. We're all exposition. It. So, like, it's building to something. It better be building to something. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> it might not be, but I'm okay with that. We're going to get some more cool journeys along the way, I'm sure. I am There's some sure. good scenes and thought experiments along that exposition journey. So, yeah, it's like you said. It's about the concepts more than the characters, and that's okay. Yeah. All right. So, to continue from Carl's questions, what book or books have really surprised you, and which of the books or stories are you really looking forward to reading with a critical eye? Ooh, that's good. Which ones have surprised you? I think the long mar, like, I don't, I don't want to keep talking about the long earth, but, series, they, but they really did surprise me. Like, I just didn't really know what to expect from them. So I guess in that way, it wasn't that surprising because I just didn't have any clue. I think what it is, is it's the young reader Discworld ones because I didn't read them when I first, they first came out because for whatever reason, I was at a time in my life where for some, I thought, no, those books are for babies. I don't need to, I want to read his adult books, which is dumb because his kids' books, I've said this on the podcast before, his kids' books are some of my favorite of his. And when I read the Tiffany Aching books, and particularly the Amazing Maurice, which as listeners know, uh, although this is contentious with some of you, has become one of my all-time faves. I, yeah, I did not expect what they would be like. And I love them so much. So maybe that's the one that rereading has surprised me. What, what about you? For surprise me, um, I came into this being like, I absolutely hate the color of magic. And I was surprised at how much I'd come around and was willing to enjoy that book. So thank you, mm -hmm. Time, for making that book much more palatable and enjoyable <laughs> to me. Um, another, another mm. kind of surprise was Johnny and the Dead, which I hadn't read before the podcast. And, it's one that it felt, I think I said this at the time, it felt like it was written for me because I had all of my interest mm. in there. It's like this guy who like is, hangs around in a graveyard, the graveyard is full of ghosts and he talks to them and they solve like, it's just all of my interests crammed into one book. And thank you, Terry Pratchett for that. Um, in terms mm. of the ones that we've got left to read that I'm really looking forward to, I'm yeah. again, got the cop out answer. I'm looking forward to all of them because every single one 
brings up different surprises and different things that I didn't get the first time around or the ones that I haven't read that I probably never would have read. I'm glad I've been brought into my life for whatever reason, except for Science of Discord 2, you can go straight to hell. But um, <laughs> oh, gee. Okay. I'm going to say really the truth that one. is one that I have really – I'm looking forward to rereading that just personally. We've covered it already on the podcast, but I think I said mm. this at the time – it hit me at different stages of life. So I read it first when I was in school, had no experience really of writing or working for a publication. I read it when I'd been doing some freelance work and also some stuff for different publications when we did it for the podcast. Now I work for a print newspaper and that's my full-time job. So mm. like I've only been there for two months, but I found myself thinking of it regularly and the way that the news gets into and like the little quotes from it. So I think the next time I read it, it's going to really hit differently. And that's really exciting to me because that'll be the third time it at a different stage of life where the same book has clicked different buttons for me and found me like it's met me sort of at different points. So I think it's going to be really interesting the next time, maybe in a year or so when I read it again. Yeah. Wow. I think for me, the ones that I haven't read are the ones that I'm looking forward to the most. So that's the last two Tiffany Aching books, and then there's Raising Steam, and then there's the two Long Earth ones. I think I've read everything else. And I think the last two Discworld books, the ones that I haven't read, which we know are the last two books that he worked on, I didn't read them at the time, and I don't know how I'm going to feel after reading them. But I think also the ones where Tiffany grows up, Mm. I'm really interested to see that I, re- I really want to know how that yeah I, I i don't know what i'm going to think about it i don't know what's going to happen so i'm really yeah i'm really interested in that and i think i'm also really interested in going back to strata and even though we have kind of discussed it a little bit in a special video which i'll link to in the episode notes if you don't know about it the carpet people like those really early books that we haven't discussed yet i'm also really interested in that looking at the start and the end of his career and seeing what's different about them one more I'd like to add to the list is Monstrous Regiment. That's one that's been sort of mm. like hovering in the sort of like this white, like the carrot on the stick for a while for me because it's been probably like a decade or more since I read that one. And I remember really enjoying it at the time despite my expectations because what I loved about Tech Ratchet then was the series. Like I loved the watch, all those things. And this is entirely new characters in an entirely new setting. With cameo appearances from people you love, but I remember being like, yes, this book, like there's so, it just every page you turn, there was something about it that you're like more and more invested. And I haven't read it since that first time. So I, I hope it holds up. I have a strong feeling it will. Um, yeah. but that is one that I'm really excited about on the horizon because I think that again, being at a different stage of life, I'll get different things out of it, but still enjoy it probably the same amount. Yeah. And I think not just being a different stage of my personal life, but also just in my own development as a human being and also living in a different cultural moment. It's going to be different rereading, particularly Monstrous Regiment, but also all of those later Discworld books, just as has been reading all of the earlier ones. So yeah, that's a bit of a cop out, isn't it? That's also a bit of a all of them <laughs> answer, but I think that's a big one for sure. Mm, no, I'm really excited about that one. So um, when we get there, I'm, I don't want to hype it up too much, but like, yeah, it's going to be good. Our episode's going to be so good. You got to listen to it. You can listen to it like seven times. It's going to be amazing. So yeah, not going to yeah. hype it up. All right. You know, I think what well, I was just going to say while we're on this, I think we should do another question about our experience of reading the books mm. because we got the same question kind of from two people. One of whom was the IUME who we've already mentioned asked this question via Twitter, but we also got a very similar question 
from Joanna at the Truth Shall Make You Fret. We've mentioned this podcast already. She asked, and the IUME asked more or less the same thing. Do you have a book that you've completely changed your mind about having covered it on the podcast? So was there one that we went back and we reread for the show now you, and you think about it very differently to how you thought about it before? I mean, you just kind of mentioned The Color, Color of Magic. magic. Yeah. yeah. Is, is that the one for you, do you think? No, I think it comes back to the answer I gave before about the truth, which again, like it's not completely changed my mind, but it's just it's met me at different stages of my life. And so I get different things out of it. And the fact that Terry Pratchett had that experience as a journalist as well and brought that to his books, I think, imbues it with something that I could never fully, as in like I have enjoyed it thoroughly every time I've read it. But I feel like the way that he puts so much into every sentence means that if you come at it with different experiences, you pull different things out of his text. And the fact that I've been able to do that in two and presumably three different ways next time I read it is very exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about this question and I I sort of had a couple of different answers. I mean, I feel like the sort of slightly jokey answer is The Last Continent because I really enjoyed the Rincewind books when I first read them. But I thought when I'd go back and read them again that I'd find them a bit tedious the way that everybody talks about them. But I realize now what had happened is I'd kind of been swayed by the received fan wisdom that, you know, those are the not very good books. But actually, I pretty much enjoyed nearly all of them. And The Last Continent, I actually found, and maybe this is a uniquely, you know, Australian experience, kind of delightful and managing to dodge mostly through omission rather than, you know, sort of careful planning, doing anything horrendous, uh, if I can put it that way, if you know what I mean. Uh, the bits of Australian culture that he decided to put in the book or, or to riff on for the book, just, I don't know, I just it just made me kind of, I enjoyed it a lot more yeah. than I really probably thought I would. No, I was scared about that one too, and it was a lot less um, horrifying than yeah. my nightmares had <laughs> prepared me for. Well, we've been burned by interesting times, right? Which I think is a good segue into the next question, which is from Francine at The Truth Shall Make You Fret, who asked, which book have you found the most challenging to cover? Because I think Interesting Times is up there. Um, See, I think I've, I've blocked a little bit from my memory, because there were some great scenes in that, but it was difficult in some ways. My my default answer, and I'm sorry to just keep piling crap on this book, it's Science of Discord 2, because, like, <laughs> if I had any choice in the matter, I'd have been, like, yeah. quarter of the way, and I'd be like, I'm putting this down, I'm living my one and precious life, I'm not continuing with this nonsense. But um, I was like, I have to read this whole thing and have a sensible opinion on it and be informed, and, oh, my God, I'm just going to keep reading yeah. this, and I could be in the sun, I hate the sun, but I hate the sun less than I hate this book. Like, so, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I'd like to give a more elegant, beautiful answer that doesn't mean to a specific book, but yeah. um, for me, that is probably the honest answer. Well, look, I think I think for me, it's kind of a tie, and it's not that one. Like, I didn't like that book, but I didn't find it challenging to talk about because I kind mm. of understood why I didn't like it. I knew what it was doing that I didn't like. And listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, we did end up talking about it more in our subscriber-only bonus podcast because I didn't feel like I'd quite gotten in all the stuff that I wanted to say. And I think you felt a bit the same, Liz. And that's possibly because we were being a bit cautious because mm. there is a, it is difficult because we're, we're big Terry fans. Like, we love his work. And he's ahead of his time in thinking and the think, yeah. like, pretty much all of the way through. Like, he's following his own morals, which were ahead of what societies were. A lot of the time. In, well, yeah, in some ways. And I, it's difficult because, you know, we're looking at a beloved work from someone who we had a lot of respect for, 
whose heart was definitely always in the right place mm. and whose explicit humanity in the books, or, or humanism is a better term, is very, like, whenever it feels like he's failing at representation or falling into the traps of using old tropes and harmful stereotypes in ways that he probably, like, I assume he never thought of at the time. Like, I can't imagine any of it was malicious. Mm. But it just feel it just clunks so hard. It feels it feels worse because it's like if your favorite teacher says something mean to you when normally they're nice. You know, you're like, what? You're not like this. You know, he's not doing it on purpose. But also, and and it is tempting. We we had a great discussion on our Discord about this. It is tempting to want to let him off because of you know when he was writing, when he was brought up, the society in which he lived. And to say, well, you know, nobody was really thinking about that at the time. But the problem with that is we're not reading it in those times. And those things, you know, when we're talking about things like the fat jokes, we're talking about the racist conflation of different Asian cultures in interesting times. We're talking about, and this is one that I feel like is definitely on my list because the two I'm thinking of are interesting times, but also Jingo, because I really feel like we dropped the ball a bit when we talked about that book by not really understanding how much it does for Middle Eastern cultures a little bit what interesting time does for Asian cultures. And that's on, that's on me. I didn't pick it up and I, I feel we didn't do a great job, uh, or at least I feel I didn't do as, as good a job as I could have in interpreting that. But we have to talk about those things because they're still in the books now. And I think if Terry was writing those stories now, he would do it differently. You know, he learned, he grew, he, he got better. And so I think when you go back and you read those books that have those clunkers in them, that really stand out as this is not how you do a respectful representation of a fictional version of another culture that's not your own. I find those the most challenging because we do need to talk about those things, but we don't want to trash someone whose work we love and who we are sure did not do this on purpose. But at the same time, we have to recognize that for a lot of people reading those books is unpleasant Mm. uh, and that the ideas that they are iterating and keeping in the culture by being popular, many of them are harmful. And certainly not helpful. And I don't think Terry would have wanted that. And I think as much as he, you know, he didn't go back and rewrite those books, I think, you know, maybe he would have tried to address some of those things, you know. And you see it in stuff like the fact that when they made the TV version of The Color of Magic, they didn't make Two Flower a parody of what in the 80s everyone was making jokes about, the Japanese tourist. They made him an American tourist. Because you can do that without horrible racist stereotypes you're poking fun at a culture that has more power than any other one in the world. So, you know, it doesn't feel unfair or harmful. So that, those are the ones I find most challenging when that stuff is in them. Mm. The next question comes from Patrick OD via Discord. And I would like to caveat this by saying, when I first read this, I misread it. So my answer does not line up with what the question is. Um, <laughs> but after Dodger, what are some other Dickens pastiches you wish Patrick had written? Just as importantly, what cool one more titles would they have had? So I, um, most importantly, left out the word Dickens in this. I was like, what ah. other pastiches would I like to have I seen see. him do? And that's probably for yep. the best because the one Dickens thing that I'm most familiar with is Oliver Twist and Dodger has covered that. So, um, I'm, go- I'm sorry, okay. Patrick. This is an excellent question and I'm sorry to do it a disservice. But, um, mm-hmm. if we were just going, what other pastiches? I was like, I would love to see him do an Agatha Christie procedural, like a Poirot or Marple. Ooh. Like version and just call it like Mead or <laughs> Hastings, yeah, or something like that. Just like a, like a word that you'd be like, is that an Agatha Christie thing? 
So yeah, I have misunderstood your question, but um, I spent a lot of time imagining like a Terry Pratchett Poirot, and I thought mm-hmm. that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. My answer for the actual question, uh, not to disparage your great answer for the no, I non-actual dis- question. I, disturb, I, disturb, I deserve disparaging for it. So no, no, it was it was great. But uh, I haven't read heaps of Dickens. I'm not a big Dickens reader, I guess. They always seemed a bit too long and there wasn't enough like fantasy in them. So the only one that I really read and really super enjoyed is the one that I would love him to do, which is A Christmas Carol. I would love to see that. And it, I mean, look, there's slight elements of it maybe in Hogfather, but I would love to see the actual Christmas Carol pastiche. Cause I reckon he'd also bring in, you know, we've talked about the sort of tradition of those Christmassy ghost stories and the fact that he did 20 pence with uh, mm. envelope and seasonal greeting, which is not really a riff on. Christmas Carol, but you can see him bringing in that sort of aspect of ghost stuff and having a lot of fun with the idea. Cause I think if it was in the Dodger style, he would write it as if it was kind of a historical and maybe he would try and come up with some weird science fictional way in which the ghosts might really be doing it. Like maybe there's an actual time machine. I don't know, mm. but I, I would have loved that, I think. And I'm just not familiar enough with other Dickens. So it's just as well that I really want that. I'm just going to throw out there that, like, Uriah Heap is an amazing name for a character. So, like, a book called mm. Heap would probably be, oh, yeah. if we're going for one more titles, I'd be like, yeah, I'm interested in this book called Heap. So, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the one-word title for the Christmas Carol pastiche is kind of taken because you, you would just call it Scrooge, right? But that's there's already films called that and books called that. But it could also just be called Ghost or Miser. That could be a good one-word title for it, mm, maybe. Miser, I'd, I'd read that. Yeah, it's a good, it's pithy. Mm. So that's my answer. Next question comes from none, none, none. If I read it, um, <laughs> yeah. were there any one-off or minor characters slash species that felt Terry could expand on? And where do you think he would go with them? I'm sorry. My answer is always assassins, 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 more assassins. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that, that's cool. I'm, I'm into that, but I would just love to have seen more troll stuff. Like we're about to do Thud, which I think is the book that has, really the most of Troll Society in it. And there's a lot of good stuff in that from memory. I haven't reread it yet. But I think we could have seen more. I loved that a mm. lot. Well, you already did a book called More. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm doing the proper No, thank you. <laughs> I, pre- I appreciated that. I appreciated that. Minor characters-wise, it's less than minor characters. I just wish we'd seen another book where the staff of the Ankh-Morpork Pork Times Yes. the main characters or where they had a much bigger role because they, you know, they turn up often, but in tiny, or like just a tiny little Cameos. bit, just a tiny little bit. Um, and I would love to see them really come to the fore. Yeah. I think they're the only ones, particularly if you're still writing now, there would be a great story in the discord equivalent of the demise of print media. We already know the clacks threatened the post office. I think the next thing they'd be coming for would be the Angmore pork times. Right. So how do they respond to that? What do they do? Um, what well, happens you clacks when... the news straight to people's houses. But someone else would be doing that, right? So how do the proper journalists, and, and also, you know, the decline of journalism generally that we often talk about, particularly with some papers where you're just like, why, this isn't proper news, what's going on? Like fighting against that. I think there's so many good mm. stories there and I would have loved to see how that evolved uh, through more than just the snippets that we got. But, I, you know, the snippets we got were good too. Mm. But that and uh, Trolls and uh, and I could have done another Gnomes book. Really, I could have gone for it. Or a sequel, as we know, he thought about writing and then decided not to, to the carpet people. Like, I love that world. And I'm really looking forward to when we delve into it for our own show again, because I just, the carpet is so wonderful. I wish we'd got another book of that. 
You know what else also I'd, I'd really enjoy is some more mm. insight into veterinary, but not like a veterinary book, but like in his household, just to get a bit ah. of a sense of like what happens in a, like in the background, like maybe a drum knot book yeah. or something. Because I would yeah. argue that he's not a minor character, but he's not a character that gets a lot of airtime. So something where we just see how that whole thing runs, where veterinary is mm. not the primary character, but you see that that side of the Discord expanded on a bit. Yeah, I'd pay that. And you know what? In a, in a similar vein, I would really like that. But also, I could kind of see like a book set in Lanka that wasn't about the witches. Mm. Like they're in it, but they're not the main characters. So it could be, maybe it would be about the blacksmith. It could be, yeah, it could be the blacksmith, could be like the, just the Ogs. Mm. <laughs> just a book of the Ogs. One of the, uh, the unfortunate like, daughters-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what's, I mean, there's all these little stories that you hear, like one of her sons is a sailor and he brings back all this stuff. Like what's his adventures? What's going on there? You know, stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah. And maybe, you know, there's something to be said for, like as much as the book that he's comes back in is not great. I kind of feel like I would love to know a bit more about Two Flowers' future. Like, mm. what, you know, where does he go from where we leave him? And the other one that I kind of, you know, and I won't say the other one because it's a spoiler because I, it is someone who I would love to see more of and find out what happened to them. And I know that, that we are actually going to see that in a book that I have not read, but I know that it happens. So I'm not going to say any more about that. Yeah. Right. That'll do. So our next question comes from Rin Betancourt via Facebook. If you could host your podcast with any character, who would you want to host with and who would you not want to host with? I've got any, one. Any Pratchett character. you got one. Who would it be? The same answer for both. Moist Von Lipwig. I think he'd be an amazing <laughs> co-host, but he would eclipse us both and he'd be full of shit. Like he would just oh. say things and they would sound really convincing. And you'd be like, wow, <laughs> I never thought of that theory. Or I didn't realize that Pratchett had done that. But he'd just be making it up and sounding really convincing. Mm. And he'd like outshine us both in terms of charisma but he wouldn't have the facts to back it up. So I think he'd be an amazing co-host, but I think he'd be a terrible co-host. Oh, yeah. Awful. I, You know what you've made me just think is my mind went, who do I like least in podcast land? Who would be the Joe Rogan of the Discworld <laughs> is where my brain went. And I think it'd be like Lord Rust or that guy. Mm. Oh, I've forgotten his name. The one, the really irritating guy who stays at the same bed and breakfast where oh yeah the one who like reads the paper and yeah i mean like neither of them are i'm not one of the elite enough for that so it might be somebody else i mean fair go diblo is is up there right like he's terrible he'd he'd host a podcast he would (laughs) but he would keep shoehorning in ads for his stuff he'd be like one of those those people where you like invite them on to do something as in like we've had no guests like this at all but i'm i'm thinking more like when you read an article that's by an expert in their field, but they keep shoehorning in their work where it's not relevant. And they're like, just like mm. my thing, this. And I'm like, that's not what we're talking about. I'm not going to buy your thing because you've mentioned it. And in fact, I'm actively going to not buy your thing, even if I'm interested in it because you've shoehorned it in this in this way that is irritating. <laughs> and I feel like that's how Dibbler would approach podcasting. That's great. I think most Discworld characters... I would not want to host a podcast with because most of them have flaws that make them very funny to read about, but would make them very irritating as podcasters. But I would absolutely 100% do a podcast with Nanny Og where we answered listeners' questions. <laughs> I would uh, just do I, that. I hope you have like a, like a fan and a whole bunch of cold water to like just throw over <laughs> yourself repeatedly. Yeah, I would need it, but I would, you would need, I would need to be the co-host because I would get embarrassed and like giggle and like, and she would make fun of me for it. That would be great. It'd be great. If you want to yeah. hear something similar to that, if you can get a hold of it, there was a Discworld podcast which ended up being called Tales from the Drum, 
which ran for quite a while. It's hosted by a guy named Randy. And he did some episodes where one of our listeners, uh, shout out to you, Susan. Hello, if you're there, did fill the role, not of nanny, but of granny and answered questions that people sent in. And those episodes are so much fun. Susan is from America and does granny with her own accent, but in a very granny voice. And I never thought of Granny Weatherwax as being a potential, like, Southern American lady. I don't know if that's the right accent. I apologize, Susan, if I'm misplacing you in America. But you sounded so good. It was such a lot of fun. So that's the closest I've heard to that. But I think if there was a nanny version of that. So, if you know, if anyone uh, does a good nanny og wants to, I'd, do, I'd make that. Answer people's questions. That would be so good. I'd love that. All right. Shall we go back to the questions from Nun Nun Nun, for those playing at home, that is N-O-N-E. N-U-N, and then N-O-N-E again via Reddit. Are there any current authors you think he would have liked to collaborate with? This is Now, we we did touch on this when we were talking about The Long War, but I ended up cutting my (laughs) answer for time, and I listened back to it. And I don't know if I agree with my previous self from a bit over a year ago. Well, I mean, I I was sort of thinking about authors that I like who I think he would be compatible with, but I I also sort of thought, well, they're Mm. too similar. Like, you know, Ben Aronovich who writes the Rivers of London books, he's the kind of person you would get if someone was going to continue writing Discworld books, I think. And they wouldn't be the same, but they'd be, he would do mm. something, you know, because he writes this sort of police procedural urban fantasy stories that are do have, an, you know, quite a bit of wit in them. I feel like if you were going to ask someone to write the continuation of the Watch books, which we know no one will, but he would be probably very high up on the list of people that you might ask. So I don't think you'd get something interesting from that collaboration necessarily because they're already, I mean, they do, they do have different things, but I don't know that it would be different enough. And I thought about a few other people. I'm like, you know, what if you wrote with Douglas Adams? What would be the point? <laughs> like, you know, I don't think they're compatible. I have talked about that on the show before, but I sort of ended up thinking that, you know, he needed to write with someone who came from quite a different place. And uh, Naomi Novik writes these great, fantasy takes that are usually romances as well but on sort of a fairy tale ideas riffing on particular fairy tales i mean i've only read one of her books which was uprooted but i really enjoyed it and i thought she brings something that maybe pratchett doesn't but they both share this love of folklore and maybe that's a crossover point where if they worked on something together you would get something really interesting and i think they both have a a really intrinsic knowledge of those kinds of Mm. stories if that makes sense and actually, where they ended up when we talked about this before is that we've never seen a good fantasy rom-com kind of novel and that we, we, we want, we kind of want that because Pratchett's romances, even when they work, they're never sort of the real thrust of a book. I think if you wanted a good fantasy comedy romance, you would need someone else because romance was not his forte as we have mm. discussed. Uh, so I think, yeah, bringing someone in who's good at that would be a whole other angle that would be a great kind of crossover, mm. maybe. Yeah. Um, so I think last time we can, I, like my answer was Diana Wynne Jones, but the question is slightly different this time because it's current authors and Diana Wynne Jones has very mm. sadly passed yeah. away. I do think that would have been an amazing collaboration because though they're in the same arena, they, I think they have, have ideas and methods that would have been complementary rather than just a Venn diagram that's two circles sitting on top of each other. But, um, <laughs> yeah. having a think about this one, I reckon, um, an interesting one, and I don't know if it'd be good necessarily, but like I was just trying to think what would make an interesting collaboration to draw on the things like Ben said to sort of bring something new out of it, not just um more of the same, um, not just yeah, 
things that you could do on your own. Why bother collaborating? So I've really enjoyed yeah. um, the work of Sayako Murata. Enjoyed is not quite the word, perhaps, because she writes some um, really <laughs> quite intense, sometimes a little bit creepy fiction. So she wrote uh, Convenience Store Woman, mm-hmm. which is a novella about a woman who works in a convenience store, but she just doesn't think like other people. Um, I could go on about this for a while, but that became a big breakthrough hit despite her having been already very popular writer in Japan before that. And then soon after that came the book Earthlings, which is so weird and so creepy, but, uh, and also just goes to not where you expect it to go. But I found it really interesting. And then most recently she released a short story collection called Life Ceremony, which um, I think actually she wrote before Earthlings because there's a lot of the proto ideas for Earthlings in there. So you can see like her pulling bits out and then putting that into her novel. And she writes really creepy stories that probe human nature in strange ways so that the story opens on this one where there's these two women out for high tea and it starts off describing almost like an Agatha Christie kind of high tea scene where everyone's having a nice time and then one of the women's like oh your 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 jumper it's beautiful is that is that human hair and the protagonist is kind of like oh of course yes it is human hair it's very thank you for noticing and it turns out in this society and this is not too much spoilers for this because just the first story and only the first bit of the first story Using human materials is very desirable and very expensive. So to have a sweater made purely out of human hair would cost thousands of dollars. Like it's a huge investment. And it slowly sort of teased out over the course of this story that um, human materials are used in almost everything, like furniture, furnishings, everything. Um, you get to know a little bit about why, but it's very normal for most people and very desirable. But there are characters who are like, mm, this maybe this is wrong. And and she puts her characters in these interesting, weird scenarios, and you kind of go, huh. And I'm not saying I want to wear sweaters made out of human hair. I absolutely do not. And if I did, I could probably make it out of my own hair because I've got enough of it. But it is a question of, like, is it a good use of materials that we have available to us? Why is it taboo? That kind of thing. So Hmm. they're not necessarily things I agree with, but they're interesting questions that she puts out there that I think would be right for it. And Terry Pratchett does the same thing, obviously not in the same sort of creepy body horror way, but... It's about putting a different spin on things that we might not otherwise think about. And I think together those two minds could have done something really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. While you were saying that, I don't know what it was they said. I think it was the phrase human material, <laughs> but it made me think of Thames and Muir again and the <laughs> the Lock Tomb books. I don't know if they would, I don't know how that would go, but I, you know, because I really enjoyed her work. It's tempting just to say, yeah, mash those two together. But I think there's something of the really visceral and more horror oriented stuff and also the way that she kind of really freely combines what would be traditional sci-fi and fantasy ideas together that I think might mesh well with Pratchett mm. and maybe in a similarly kind of offbeat kind of darker angle <laughs> to what you're talking about. Yeah, because it's just about coming at human nature from a different angle and just sort of teasing out the borders of it. Mm. I think they both do. Well, Terry Pratchett definitely did that in my opinion pushes like the boundaries of how yeah. people are especially with his villains yeah i think the last one that i'd throw in the ring is uh, maybe amy kaufman mm. a friend of this podcast and previous guest who we know is a great collaborative writer some of her young adult fiction particularly has got a bit of, it's got a bit of that wry humor that i think would be quite compatible but again she knows how to write a romance as well mm. and i think that's something else that she could also bring to that so yeah there's a there's a few answers for you yeah 
There's a few people. Love to see. Did it. you have any other ones? I, don't, I feel like I've given like three. <laughs> I bogarted this. I've given like three people. I feel like if I give more, I would be drawing legs on a snake. I'm happy with my answers. I'm going to lock it in. Why have you never said that before? That's a great phrase, drawing legs on the snake. Oh, I say that all the time in my normal day-to-day life. So I'm shocked that I haven't said it here. But um, yeah, just prepare for more translated idioms in your future. If that is that is your bag, I've got a lot of them. Okay. All right. Great. All right. So our next question comes from Nigel Bell via Twitter. How many TV slash movie and radio productions did Terry himself make cameos in? Was there a production slash recording wherein he played a greater part? I was happy about this question in some ways because I kind of knew the answer off the top of my head and I had a quick look. But the answer is no, there weren't really. He really only appears in four adaptations of his own work. He appears in all three of the mob's TV adaptations. So that's a Hogfather where he plays the toy shop owner where, spoiler alert, death buys the <laughs> rocking horse for Albert at the end. He also is one of the astrologers in The Color of Magic, um, who's trying to, or astrochelonists, I think is the, is probably the more accurate term, who's trying to figure out the sex of Greta Chuan, uh, in The Color of Magic. And then he's also a postman in Going Postal. And they're all kind of very minor. Like, I don't think he's even got dialogue in Going Postal from memory. And he's, un- he's only got one line in Hogfather. And I think he maybe has one or two lines of dialogue in The Color of Magic. I'm not sure about that one. So there's in those three, and he appears alongside Neil Gaiman in one of the last things that he recorded in the radio adaptation of Good Omens from about 2014, I think is the right year. They appear as a couple of ill-fated cops who are not in the book or the TV show. They were like a little extra bit uh, just for the radio series. Um, and it's quite cute. Hmm. I think they're actually named ne- – I-, I might be wrong about this, but I-, I think I remember them actually being named Neil and Terry. <laughs> That's cute. But yeah, and he did make documentaries. He made about five, maybe six. There's two famous ones about Alzheimer's and there's another one about euthanasia, choosing to die. And they were both towards the end of his life. And he narrates those. He's in them. That's really the most you see of him on film, apart from in things like interviews and talks. All right. So shall we move on to questions about us? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So um, this is a good one. Well, they're all good ones. From Molokov mm. via Discord. What is a question you would want to ask your listeners? I've been thinking about this because we did try and ask some before this episode and we did get some good answers, mm. but I think we didn't get very specific. Mm. <laughs> I feel like we could have, certainly I feel like I could have come up with better questions before. I've got one. Um, What is your driver's license, your date of birth? Oh, wait, sorry, that's Optus that does that. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, are you working for Optus? Oh, that's a very of the time reference, isn't it? Never mind. Yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you. No one, no one sent us your details like that, please. No. <laughs> no, no, don't. And I'm um, sorry to anyone who is an Optus customer. Uh, yeah. But do you have one for real? I do though? have one for real. And I'm not sure if I've asked it before. I don't think I have. But I want to know if there are people in your life who are equally or at least to a degree also fans of Terry Pratchett. Because when I first mm. got into Terry Pratchett, there wasn't really anyone around that I knew who I could talk to about the books or discuss them with. I just sort of quietly read them by myself until basically this so I'm just curious if that's a normal experience, if you generally have people in your life that you talk about it with or if it started off differently and has changed. So, yeah, I'm really curious to know mm. how it fits in with your social circle. I mean, I want to ask a lot of things. Mm. How do you read the books? Do you reread them? Do you just have fond memories of them? And a lot of the questions I would ask actually is how you interact with us. Well, we've asked this of our subscribers, but, you know, what are you doing when you listen to the podcast? Mm. Do you like listen to it all the way through. And I mean, this is just because I'm interested because obviously I don't listen to the podcast in the same way that someone who didn't make it does. 
are you actually reading along with us? Are you reading the books in order and you're trying to listen to our episodes out of order? Do you do you maybe not reread the books before you listen to the podcast and you're just like, well, I, I don't need to. You kind of t- remind me what happened so I can enjoy it anyway. I hope – actually, that's a, that is a specific question. Does that work? Have you ever listened to the podcast not having reread the book and does it make sense? That is something I would really love to know because I don't think anybody has ever – told me that they've done that. We mostly hear from people who have reread the book. So I would love to know that specifically. I have a non-Terry Pratchett related question to put out. Just a bit oh, yeah, silly. do it. Um, I'm just curious if you have had a word or a phrase that you've said for most of your life and then suddenly figured out or been told that that's actually not correct. So for me, um, in playgrounds in Australia, probably across the world, they have these things called, uh, they have these little wood chips everywhere. Mm-hmm. I always thought they were called bard chips, like B-A-R-D chips, but apparently they're called bark chips, bark chips. which makes a lot more sense because they're chips made of bark. Yep. So not very amusing or entertaining, but it was just a bit of a, you know, Shakespeare chips all all up and down the playgrounds <laughs> of Australia. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. This kind of leads me to a question, and I think we've had this question asked of us, but what was the joke in Pratchett or indeed in another book that you just didn't get until years later and then you went... Oh, and it was great. Mm. And you loved it. That's what I want to know because those things are so mm. good. The sleepers that get you, uh, you know, and that happens a lot with Pratchett because a lot of us start reading him very young and then we get older and we learn more things and now it makes sense. <laughs> so that's what I'd like to know. What's in Pratchett or, or anywhere else? Yeah. All right. So our next question comes from Craig McSee via Discord. I would like to know what you've learned about yourself, each other, about Sir Terry Pratchett, and how that may have changed through this method of broadcast and the research therein. Oof, big question. Oh, yeah, that is a big question. I've learned a lot about a lot of things because I do a lot of research for the episode notes. One of these days I'd love to do, maybe it's more a bonus episode or, or an episode of our subscriber podcast, but I'd love to just sort of pick out some of the best and weirdest things that I've learned doing that. Uh, so there's heaps of what I've learned. I can't summarize it. What have we learned about each other? Um, I have learned that Ben is a hyper-organized spreadsheet guy, and I am eternally <laughs> grateful for that. He's <laughs> got a spreadsheet for everything. It's all clearly labeled. There are particular fonts that should be used. Um, there are notes mm-hmm. and Google Drive documents every time. Um, whereas I'm just more like, like, I think I've said it before, my notes for each episode, I fold up an A4 piece of paper and I have three of them. Like there's, Notes, quotes, and footnotes, and then a blank one for any overflow. And I use it as a bookmark and do notes all the way through. Ben writes thorough, legible notes, and he types them out for every episode. Um, whereas whenever I try and go back and read my notes, like one book later, my handwriting is atrocious. Um, and I always sort of use a mental shorthand that makes sense to me for about a week after writing it, but then becomes like lost to the chasms of time. So like, I mm. have a very chaotic approach. It, I mean, I think it works, but... Yeah, I've learned that Ben is very organized, and again, I'm eternally grateful for that. Well, thank you. But, I mean, I, I've learned that you spin gold out of those tiny little notes. Like, my favorite thing, and this kind of touches on another question I think we got asked, because we'll get on to questions specifically about the podcast in a minute, but I frequently, when editing, will hear a pun that I didn't hear during the recording because you slipped it in while I was in the middle of a sentence, <laughs> or maybe there was a bit of a lag over the video, and I didn't. I didn't clock it at the time and then I will find it 
And I always try, whenever I can, make room in the recording somewhere and slot it in there so that the the listener, <laughs> you, can hear it. But there's no reaction from me. And I feel, <laughs> I think what I've learned about you is that you, if you were to look at your Twitter feed, Liz, I feel like people might assume that you spend hours and hours laboring over these amazing puns and getting them exactly right. But what I have learned is that, no, at least some of them just come straight out of your brain at 100 miles an hour. Uh and they're perfect. They're perfectly formed. That's very kind of you. <laughs> you have a wit faster than anyone that I've ever seen. It's incredible. And I love it. Well, yeah. they're not going to stop. <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> what else? I think doing this podcast, I've learned that podcasting as a medium for me is valuable because of the way it allows you to interact with a community of your audience. Mm. I mean, that's how I've always tried to assess the success of any podcast that I've done. Uh, not in terms of numbers and downloads, but in terms of how good is the interaction that we have with our community of listeners. Do we have a community of listeners or is it just sort of a one-way street? And the warmth and the excitement of people who listen to the show when they get in touch with us, I love it. I love when we get little messages. Actually, Liz, this is one that I haven't even forwarded on to mm. you yet. We had a great response from Elizabeth to thank you for continually talking about Diana Wynne Jones yes. because uh, she's finally started reading her and, and is loving it. You know, you get those little interactions. I always knew that that was possible, but I think engaging with the community about Terry Pratchett and the kind of warm feeling that is like, it's, it's such a nice fandom mm. to be engaged with. No, I couldn't agree more. It's just reinforce that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I've learned about Sir Terry Pratchett is that he had a strange uncanny knack for bringing together some of the best people I've ever met. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Terry. All right, so the next question comes from Ida Welsh via Instagram. What non-Pratchett books do you read currently? Oh, this is terrible because I want to read more. I had a reading goal of 42 books this <laughs> year, which is my usual reading goal. I am kind of a bit behind, but I'm reading some comics at the moment, actually. I mean, I'm really looking forward to, I, I've, I've mentioned it so many times this episode because I, it's on my mind, really looking forward to the next Tamsin Muir book, uh, None of the Ninth. I haven't got it yet. Really want to read it. Speaking of comic books, I did just recently read Die by Kieran Gillen, which is about a bunch of people who get sucked into a role-playing game, like a Dungeons and Dragons style thing. That doesn't sound like your interest at all. Oh, no, but it's really dark and psychological and complex, but good. Wasn't there an Australian, like, by Julian Rubenstein, where, like, people get sucked into a game? Like, oh, yeah. Hmm, but yeah, dark. Um, spe- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll look it up later. something, it's called. Yeah, anyway, that's probably the most recent thing I've read that wasn't by Terry Pratchett. How about you? Uh, I'm actually currently almost finished reading the full collection of Miss Marple short stories. I was actually gifted this by a listener of ours, so thank you very much for sending me that a few years ago. It has been a joy reading them. They're also different from one another as well, because I've read a lot of them, but sitting down and reading them in chronological order and seeing her develop as a character has been really interesting, and it also drives me around the bend thinking just what a brain Agatha Christie had because she just comes up with all of these Mm. different things that I just don't know how one person can see around corners or through situations in that way like I feel like if I sat down and I wrote one even like plan of a crime like one of her books I'd I'd feel like genius (laughs) of the world and she just pumped them out she would just in a short story she'd just throw out ideas that could have sustained a novel but she's like no because I'll have more of them it doesn't really matter I can just do whatever and so it's kind of really nice to spend time in a brain like that. Also a bit scary, but you know. That's cool. Oh, how could I forget this? I also recently read 
a book by one of our guests. I've, I read Sabriel by Garth Nix. Huh? And I really liked it. It was really good. And I, I didn't know what to expect because, you know, it's 25 years old. It's not a recent book. And, uh, it is a little bit old school fantasy, but it also feels quite modern in mm. a lot of ways. And I just really enjoyed it. I will probably read the other ones in the series. I actually, um, it's interesting you say that because after he came on our podcast, because I was a big fan, still am, but I read the, mm. read the, at school, the ones that were out then. And so after he came on the podcast, I reread that whole series. And it's very cool because you see characters come and go from them. You see Sayrule across different stages of her life. It's just, it's, it's, couldn't recommend it more. And it was really nice to step back into a book series from a time when I was just discovering the joy of reading as well. Cause mm. you get a lot of like nostalgic joy from that as well. Well, I did. Yeah. I feel like I got secondhand nostalgic joy because both you were really into it and my partner was really into them um, as well. So yeah, reading it, I feel like I'm connecting with your brain yeah. <laughs> in a new way. Read them and we'll talk about it. It's mm. great. Okay. Yeah. I'll get there. I'll try and read some more interesting books <laughs> before we get asked this question again. I've got this great collection of short stories where um, people make jumpers out of human hair and eat their friends when they die, <laughs> um, if that's of any interest. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Actually, on my to-read pile, I do have still, I feel really bad that I haven't read the other stories, but I've got that collection of short stories that you were in. Ah. Collisions? (laughs) Yes, that that one. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read the other ones yet. Your story is very good. Thank you. That's very kind of you. So, next question comes from Sven via Discord. What have you always wanted to know about each other but never asked? Like, what is up with this weird middle initial or something like that? (laughs) I'm glad he gave, like, a very friendly, innocuous (laughs) example so uh, you're not expecting us to go deep and dark with this. Thank you, Sven. Mm. Um, <laughs> and shout out to Sven, whose questions are always <laughs> delightful. Mm. Uh, that rare episode where we don't get a question from you, Sven, I'm always like, oh, mm. that's a Sven question. Don't feel pressured to send more, but this is a great one. What do you want to know? See, I don't know, because like, I feel like when I want to know something, I just ask. I'm I'm pretty shame, mm. or I'll figure it out. I spent a long time thinking about this. I'm like, what do I want to know about Ben that I could ask that isn't deeply like inappropriate for a podcast or like too personal or, or anything. Mm. And so I would like to know how many t-shirts do you own? Oh. And and a follow up question. How many mugs across your life have you owned that feature you on them? (laughs) Uh, so to answer the first one first, how many t-shirts? The answer is way too many. Probably at least 50. It's too many. I feel like it's, it's more than Because I never throw them away. No, well, I think it used to be. I don't think it is now, but I haven't counted them for a while. I just feel like I've never seen you wear the same t-shirt twice. Well, there's probably about 20 of them that I wear most of the time. I mean, this is, this is what happens when you have a job where you're, you just wear a t-shirt to work, right? You don't, you don't differentiate between what you wear on the weekend and what you wear to work that much. I mean, I'm wearing, I'm wearing this one that I'm wearing right now. I'm trying to <laughs> unzip my hoodie without making a, a weird zipper noise. This is one I wear quite like, often. I've never seen uh, that in my life. You can't see it, listener, obviously, but it's got all the uh, doctors. Well, not all of them because it's quite an old T-shirt. It's got the first uh, 12, I think, doctors, maybe 13. Oh, my God. Are they owls, um, like Doctor Who's? As owls. Sorry, I, I spoiled the joke, but... Yeah. So, yeah, it's probably 50, 50 or 60. I really, I've been meaning to do a cull for ages, and I still haven't got around to it. It's too many. It's too many. So, I'll have to sort of... T-minus... How many? No, sorry. Uh, yeah, I still, <laughs> I still own all the mugs that I've owned ever that have my face on them, and I think it's three. Yeah, that's good. It's it's solid. Three. I think it's three. 
because there's one that my mom, I didn't make any of them. <laughs> there's a one likely story. That has, well, there's one that has Splendid Chaps on it, which is the Doctor Who podcast I did. And uh, Petra, who was one of our co-hosts, made a few of those as sort of like a, a sample of, could we do this as merch? And much like this podcast, we had little cartoons of our faces as part of the logo. So my face is on that. Uh, there's one that my mum made from a poster for my Dungeons and Dragons comedy show, Dungeon Crawl. But yeah, I've got one made from a Dungeon Crawl poster that my mum made. That's two. And there is a third one. What's the other one? I can't remember what the other one is, but there's one more. That's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's <laughs> not weird. With my face on it's it. cool. I, I think don't know more where it's people from. should have that in their lives. Well, I mean, I found this is, I mean, you said what's something you've learned about yourself. I think I kind of had an inkling of this, but since we did it for this podcast, it really cemented the fact. One thing I've learned um, about myself, and this is more for Craig's question, is I really like paying an artist to draw a cartoon version of me and people that I know. Because that's great. <laughs> I, it is great. It's so good. And I've done it like probably slightly too many times. Not, not enough times. We've got to get more. Yeah. Well, I've got to ask you a question mm. now, Liz. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Mm. You make your own clothes sometimes, mm. and they're amazing. What, what What's the one you're proudest of? Um, perhaps, like, it's one that I've made again and again since because I really liked it, but I've adapted a pattern for a wrap dress where it actually has a longer strap that ties around, whereas the pattern originally defeated the purpose of being a wrap dress because you just tied one on the inside and tied one on the outside. I'm like, just be a zip or just <laughs> be a pullover one. Like, it's not a wrap dress. So that's one I've made okay. a lot. But perhaps the one that I'm most proud in terms of complexity was in medical school, we'd have like a med ball once a year where you'd dress up like a formal and go to a thing. It was nonstop then. Um, it was like full-time hours and things. And somehow I managed to make this ridiculous 80s dress from an 80s pattern that had all of this like taffeta skirt on the inside. It was purple taffeta. And I learned how to make like a tutu, like specifically underneath this weird lining and it's all like got a ribbon led edged around it. And I've regularly thought about how did I find the time to make that? Also, why, why did I do it? Cause it's got all these complicated things in it that I didn't know beforehand, like how to do boning, making a, a tutu, basically lining it with mm-hmm. ribbon, doing an overlayer. I'm just kind of like, I must have just really needed to do something creative at that time. So perhaps that one, because it's, yeah, That's it was, fair. it was difficult. I did it and I got it done in time. That's amazing. Okay, that's cool. I want to see a picture of that now. Oh, I've still got the dress. It's it's huge because it has like meters upon meters of purple, like <laughs> I bet. yeah, chul in there. So it's like shoved in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Mm. Okay, I love it. I love it. I, now I'm thinking of I've thought of these other questions, but I'm going to save them. We'll we'll do them another time. And um, Sven, you're a subscriber. Maybe we'll do them on the next Oog Club. We'll ask each other some questions because I've thought of some more now. We did get some questions about making a podcast. Let's answer some of those. All right. So we'll start with one from Jing, which came via Discord. Has anything changed in terms of how you do the podcast throughout the course of 60 episodes? Is there anything you realize that works well for the podcast or does not work so you change later? Oh, it's a good question. There's a few things that have changed practically. So uh, since episode 30, in fact, we've recorded remotely, which has made the sound recording most of the time a bit cleaner. It makes a few things possible in the edit that are more difficult when you're recording everybody in the same room. So that's been good, but I do miss being in person in the same yeah. room with you, Liz, and whoever our guest is. Mm. We've also, I mean, that's changed the gear that we use a little bit. It's also changed some of the practicalities. I mean, we recently switched, I say recently, it's probably about a year ago now, 
but we've switched to uh, using an online recording service, which for the most part works very well. Um, when it goes wrong, it's a bit disastrous, <laughs> but usually it works uh, very well. And that has simplified things from the recording perspective. Mm. In terms of structure, though. What about format? Yeah. We spent a long time thinking at the beginning and Ben, captain of spreadsheets and ideas, came really strong with suggestions like having the questions at the end, having footnotes. So I feel like structure-wise we've stayed pretty consistent from the get-go. Um, mm. I'm trying to think if there's been any major changes. Sometimes we ebb and flow with how many footnotes, if any, there are. Yeah, that's usually a matter of time, mm. really. Like whenever I've got time, I'll try and record a few, but it sometimes the edit takes a long time, as I will talk about in a moment, because I think someone did ask about that, and there's not time to add stuff in. Mm. Uh, but I try to do it when when I can. And I love it when you do one or when the guest does one. Um, mm. But yeah, I think so that's always a bit of a treat. Structure-wise, it's been pretty consistent, though perhaps we originally were looking more at an hour, an hour and a half, but it sort of naturally blew out a little bit to two hours on average. Do you think that's fair to say? Uh, it's probably a bit over two hours now. Most episodes are between two and two and a half hours. Mm. But that wasn't the original plan. No, but I think that's become a kind of, dare I say, natural length. I mean, mm. when we do a short story, they're, they're shorter. Um, and it does take longer to edit, but it, I think it's a better length to get into more of the intricacies of a whole novel. Yeah. You know, it's like, like it's hard to talk about a whole 400, 500 page book in detail in an hour. Yeah, it's like a book club. Like that's how you wouldn't spend an hour at a book club. Yeah. You'd spend that sort of time. So I think, like you say, it's it's the natural sort of length for it. And we've found that over the course of it, it just sort of yeah. dropped that way. One of the things that's been interesting about seeing all these other um, Pratchett podcasts, most of which sort of, I, I don't want this to sound the wrong way. They started after us, but I don't think it's because of us. But seeing all these other podcasts doing similar to what we're doing, but doing it in different ways. Every now and then I look at, some of the ways they're doing it, I go, oh, is that, would, would we be, should we be doing it that way? Would, should we be doing something else? And I think the answer is no. I think everyone's doing it kind of in their own way, um, with their own take and their own format. And weirdly, I think we quite quickly established how we wanted to do this mm. and it's served us well. Yeah. All right. So for the next question, I might actually roll two together because they sort of have overlapping interests. So they, first question comes mm -hmm. from Patrick OD via Discord. What's your process for editing episodes of Pratchett? How much time is involved and what kind of decisions? And following on from that, it's one from a chew and sneezed via Twitter. Technical question for Ben. How long does it take to edit the podcast and do the show notes? I'm assuming you cut quite a bit, even though they generally have a fair, fairly generous runtime. And the show notes are extensive. It must be a lot of work. So, Ben. It is. Uh, and look, you know, you mentioned um, that I'm Mr. Spreadsheets. I think it was Captain Spreadsheets. Captain I'll take it. I'm very proud of that. But I am an amateur when it comes to spreadsheets in terms of automation and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm actually opening one right now <laughs> because I do keep a track of how long it takes me to do these things because I find it useful in terms of understanding what makes it more difficult. And I can tell you that the average amount of time, and I'm looking at this right now, for me to edit a podcast, if it's a standard episode, which is like, the usual two to two and a half hour long one, it takes me a little bit under 20 mm, hours. So many about hours. About 19 hours on average. It's a long time. And that's because I'm a perfectionist about it a little bit. I'm trying to let go of that a bit more. But the thing is that the decisions that are involved, and this was part of Patrick's question, are that I'm trying to do an audio edit that is similar to the kind of edit you would do in text to someone before you go into print. I mean, the point of having it recorded and then editing it is so that it sounds the best that it can be. And I want it to be interesting. 
And I don't want it to be just whatever we said off the top of our heads. Like if we take a moment to think about something, if we put something three different ways and we're happy with the last one, or if, you know, we go off on a tangent and it doesn't really go anywhere (laughs) or it's not really related to the book. Those are the kinds of things that I edit out because we do often record when we're doing a full episode with a guest for three, three and a half hours. Like it's Mm. a proper long chat about a book. And we've kind of moved the goalpost of what our maximum allowable length is. And in some ways, that's just to make the edit a little bit easier. Because if you're trying to take that long conversation and make it an hour and a half, it's really hard, Mm. particularly because we do a recap of the whole plot. You can't just cut big chunks out because then there's whole bits of the plot missing and it doesn't make sense anymore. So those things are kind of have to keep in. And then there's just little, I mean, there's lots of little technical things that you look for, like, okay, someone's mentioned this, and then later on, someone has done a callback to that. That means I can't cut that first bit out. Like you, so I also looking at it from a, like a a joke and humor structure as well as, you know, the plot. Mm. So there's a lot of, lot of stuff. Um, most of the things I cut out never need to see the light of day. Mm. Like they're not, they're not important. I keep a lot of the outtakes, but we don't use most of them. One of these days we'll string some of the stupider ones together. I'm sure. <laughs> the end of a nineties movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the biggest cuts are generally speaking digressions and they're interesting. Often they're quite interesting, but they're too far off topic. And when you're doing a two and a half hour book club podcast about a book, we want to keep most of the discussion about the book. That's why you're here. I'll try and keep stuff like that in where it's relevant and where it's interesting and where it's funny, particularly, but that's what mostly gets cut. Yeah. And we try to make that clear to our guests too ahead of time and say, look, you know, if you say something and you think that's not really how I wanted to say that, give them the opportunity to say it again and we'll cut that out. You know, like that's the benefit of not being live. If you're just going to record a podcast, and this is this is my personal opinion, but if you're going to record a podcast, edit it. Mm. If I wanted to hear people's unfiltered live thoughts, I'd watch Q&A or listen to live radio, and I don't do either of those things. So take advantage of the opportunity that the medium gives you. In terms of the show notes, I'm a bit behind at the moment. We had a few months there where I was doing two episodes at once, Mm. and we had one episode where some of the audio problems that we had meant it actually took me nearly 30 hours to edit. Mm. It was difficult. And so that's put me a bit behind. But my feeling with the episode notes, the point of them is that I don't want someone to listen to the podcast and have to go somewhere else to get enough context to understand what we're talking about. Because we are Australians, we have a slightly different cultural context to the majority of our listeners, because most of you are in America and the UK. A lot of you are in Australia as well, but there's a lot of people from other places. And also, I want to answer questions that we raise and make sure that if we make mistakes, I correct them. So that's why I call it notes and errata. Mm. And that takes a fairly long amount of time, but I I quite enjoy doing it. You know, I sort of put on some music or, you know, put on a stupid TV show that I don't have to pay too much attention to in the background, and I sit there researching and writing. All right, so the next question comes from Des via Twitter. Any chance of a live show in the future? Would love to see a visual book like the maps done in person. I'll wear a mask, get another shot, travel, watch on Zoom, whatever. So, first oh, of all, Des. thank you. Yes, appreciated. This was actually, you know what, this, going back to um, Jing's question from earlier, one thing that has changed is I really wanted us to do more live mm. shows because, you know, my previous podcast was always a live show and I love that atmosphere, really brings something different to it. And one of the original ideas I had was that we would do the short stories, we'd only do those as live shows. And We've done one. We did one, yeah, and it hasn't really worked out. Um, we'll see, I guess, if we get to do another one anytime soon. 
I have thought about, and we haven't really talked about it, but I have thought about whether or not we could do like a live recording mm. with an online audience. And I, and Des, I really just want to say to you and to Atu and Sneeze too, who chimed in to say, yes, please. It really means a lot to me that you are thinking about the kind of practical considerations of, of being safe even now as people are starting to talk about the pandemic being over. And I don't want to go on about this too much because everybody's sick of talking about it. But I think that's why it's important that I do mention it because, you know, my household is one of many that is in a position where it's not safe for us. And it doesn't matter that the government has said you don't have to wear masks anymore. The effect of people in my household getting the virus is way worse and we can't risk it. And that means that I'm not out there doing things that I wish I was doing. And when anyone takes that into account and considers it, it means a lot to me and to anyone who's in that same situation that, you know, I don't have to ask. And so desert really means a lot to me. Um, and I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, but I would love to do it. Yeah. Same. How about you? Yeah. I'd be in like a shot. Like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if we have the chance to, and if we find a format that works, um, absolutely. Stay tuned. If we can make it happen, we will. Yeah. A hundred percent. All right. I can't believe um, we're up to our last question. We got so many great ones. What? Yeah. This is unbelievable. This one comes from Jonas Larson Orlanders via email. If the Australian justice system forced you to stop making Pratchett podcasts and you a couple of years later decided to make another book club podcast to fill the empty voids in your hearts, what would that new <laughs> podcast be about? Douglas Adams, H.P. Lovecraft, D&D modules? Some great suggestions there. I feel like... They are. I feel like those suggestions maybe are all aimed a bit too squarely at me. Um, I've said this, I think, before, possibly in episode 42, so which is like a year and a half ago. Weird. But I seriously do think I will at some point make a similar style podcast about Douglas mm. Adams um, and specifically the Hitchhiker's Guide, but but all of his books. Because, first of all, it'd be short because <laughs> he didn't write as much as Terry Pratchett. Um, I think one of the reasons so many people do Terry Pratchett podcasts is because even if you just do the Discworld, that's 41 episodes. That's enough to take you through, you know, three and a half years of monthly books. That's quite a good length for a thing that will end, but lasts long enough to pick up an audience. Yeah, I would love to do Douglas Adams one. Yeah. And I've thought about other things, but I think if it was a book club one, that would be the big one for me. But we've also talked about doing a Diana Wynne Jones yeah. podcast. That's what I was going to say, because she is. So good, and I, I think does not get the recognition she deserves, and there's so much mm. in her work that could absolutely fill the same sort of time that we spend on this because she mm. did some very good series, she did some standalone books, and it's just there's a lot to discuss in there. So absolutely, I think there would be a good podcast in that and possibly one that I would very much actually want to do, whether or not yeah. the government stops us from doing our Terry Pratchett podcast. <laughs> I hope they don't. I hope so too. What kind of law would that be? Why would they stop us? What would be the grounds for that? Um, too many Pratchett podcasts? Terrorism. What was that? That was terrorism. Terry. Sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. Well, so that brings us to the end of our questions. We also had put some questions oh. out to our listeners who responded in droves to the point where we actually can't read all of them out no. in full because that could be its own two and a half hour podcast. And I would listen to that actually. Should we go through some highlights? Yeah. Just quickly, uh, a few things. One of the questions we asked is, what are we not doing that you'd like to hear us do? And there were some good ones there. Um, Chew and Sneeze asked about an ep-by-ep recap of The Watch. Watch this space. Yeah. We might Please be doing something yeah. like that. Um, when and where we'll fit that in, <laughs> not sure, but it is something we want to do. Mm. So it, it will probably happen. Craig McSee wanted to hear a Pratchat, the truth shall make you fret. 
crossover Ooh, episode. Wow. You're getting what you want next <laughs> month, uh, as we're going to be doing Where's My Cow together. <laughs> so that's going to be very exciting. I'm really looking forward to that. So, you know, if you ask for it, it might happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Ian Banks, uh, also via Discord, thought maybe we could do an episode or two just about Pratchett's influences, mm. like what books and other stuff deeply influenced him. I think that is a really good topic for an episode, but that's something that like a lot of the the really interesting stuff, there's a lot of things that we are deliberately not doing until we've pretty much finished yep. because we don't want to spoil any of the books that we haven't talked about. But that's a great one. Mm. So thank you for those suggestions. If you've got other suggestions for things you want us to do, please send them in. We'd love to hear them. Absolutely. Um, can't guarantee we'll do all of them. It's, it's a lot of work doing just these episodes, but we will take all ideas mm. under consideration. And we have some of our own, of course, as well, <laughs> that we have not enough time to do. Uh, six-ish is now seeming like a very short amount of time yes. uh, in years. What about any other ones you want to talk about there, Liz? We also asked, you know, what what did you disagree with the most? We got a few interesting responses to that. I think Bell um, highlighting a disagreement about Morris and his educated rodents um, was an interesting one. And oh, it reminded yes. me about Rat Kings, which um, I had erased from my memory. <laughs> so um, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah so, that's great. Oof. Thanks to Craig again, who also said like he did feel we got a bit harsh on a couple of episodes and he did say that to us and we have talked to him about that mm. on our Discord as he's a subscriber. Um, one time being the watch, which is one of the reasons why I'm keen for us to revisit it. Um, another one being the long Mars. And I have softened a bit on that. I think maybe I was a little overstating the things I didn't like about the book, but there are some things about it that I still do really not like, but that's all right. You know, we don't all like the same things. And I think like, as we talked about earlier this episode, um, I, I try to look at it as one long book rather than individual books. Mm. And I think in, with that in mind, long Mars works. We did also ask, you know, what was most surprising or what did you learn from listening to the podcast? We, we won't have time to go through all of these because we got some great mm. responses, mostly again from our subscribers on Discord. We'll try and go through some of those and talk about them in an upcoming episode of our subscriber only podcast, the Ook Club. Mm. But please do tell us, like you can uh, send in your answers via social media using the hashtag Pratchett60, or you can send us an email at chat at pratchettpodcast.com. And we'd love to hear, you know, what have you learned from the podcast? What do you wish we were doing? Or do you have any requests? And, of course, you can always send in questions for the books that we're going to cover next. But there was one question I think, Liz, you wanted to delve into just a little bit before we go, which is you did ask, (laughs) and this was such a good question, what are your weirdest and best Discworld theories? We didn't get a lot, but we got a couple of good responses. Yeah, quality, not quantity. So, mm, um, yeah. So I read these out in full. Yeah. And you cogitate about them as well, listener. Mm. And if you have thoughts about these theories or you've got more theories of your own, please share them with Love us. Love to hear them. All right. So the first yeah. one comes from Nathan J. Phillips via Discord. Bit late to the party on this one, but an early theory I had when starting Discord books, early teens, and the theory holds up in no way at all, was that death was new to the job, relatively new on a cosmic scale, of course. And that was why he wanted to know so much about people. My theory at the time was that when he understood what it was to be human, he'd become one and the next death would take over. The previous death, according to this theory, would be someone with extraordinary patience on a cosmic scale and had an incredibly good and subtle handle on managing people, like Lord Veterinary. Clearly didn't hold up, but thought it might be weird enough to share for the question. I love that so, so much. It's good. Is- it's so good, isn't it? And you know, it does kind of fit in because there are some people who think that maybe it's not mm. the same death in those first few books, particularly the first two books, and particularly The Color of Magic, because he does not quite have the same attitude. 
And we know, much in the same way that the patrician doesn't seem the same in those early books, that Pratchett has said, no, it's meant to be the same character. I just didn't really have a handle on what I was doing yet. But you could read mm. into that, that that is a death who hasn't quite figured out being human yet and maybe gets replaced by the time you get around to Mort or something. I don't know. It, that, that doesn't quite work. Yeah. But A little bit of Neri being like a, a previous death who has achieved human status, that, oh, that's just beautiful. So yeah. good. And I can see so it. So good. Yeah, thank you, Nathan, for sharing that. That was beautiful. And we got one other one. So this is the like the spark of one for us to like to for us to all think about a theory that could work with it. So this one comes mm. from Joel via Discord. Mm. If I were to have a fan theory, it would definitely circle around the fact that Lucy is concentrating a lot of big world events around his lifetime after the last breaking of time, because it's a little bit suspicious otherwise, both with the timeline inconsistencies and also the sheer amount of history that happens. I feel like this is a real get out the red string kind of we can come up with something good here. <laughs> Well, see, I read this and I think it could go either way. Like either he's manipulating history to put all of these events in his lifetime or we've got to remember he's a history monk. So for starters, he lives for a very long time. But secondly, he doesn't have to live through time linearly. Mm. He can step out of history to wherever he's got to go. But maybe he's gathering these <laughs> these Harvesting. events. Harvesting. <laughs> yeah. It's why, but I do like this idea that there's a reason why so much stuff happens on the disc world. It's not just because... Terry Pratchett wrote like three or four novels a year for a long time. It's because Lutzi is like just compiling everything into one easy to access kind of glob of stuff. Mm. Yeah, I kind of no, like that. I don't know if that was a good that was that was my wibbly wobbly timey wimey ball of stuff. I think. No, I'm gonna have to get the yarn <laughs> out. Terrible. And think about it a little bit more, but I'd pay that. Like that, he's like maybe he exists across mm. all of time, and it just appears to be in one lifetime, but his lifetime is all of time. So of course it is. <laughs> Could be, could be. But look, uh, speaking of time, we're out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's all we got. But thank you for sending in all of your questions and sending in all of your answers. Thank you so much to all of our subscribers who support what we do, making this show, make it possible. Uh, you can become one if you want to. Just go to our website, com to find out more. But Liz, before we go, we should remind people what we're reading next we should do that. Which we kind of already have yeah, done, I mean, but we should do it yeah. again. So land with a bit of a thud? <laughs> <laughs> Dropped that one. It was a clanger. Mm. No, it was a thud. Because <laughs> we are reading thud. I'm really looking forward to it. Mm. I mean, look, we're in the end game of the Discworld now. I think there's only about six or seven Discworld novels we haven't read yet. Yeah, it came around quite suddenly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we're going to read thud. The hashtag to send in questions about that book is Pratchett 61 but we are also doing a bonus episode about the book that appears in that book mm-hmm. which is where's my cow <laughs> and that will be as aforementioned with joe and francine of the truth shall make you fret if you want to send in questions about that because this is a crossover between us and the truth shall make you fret we have decided to use the hashtag make ye chat so please <laughs> i don't know if that'll work you don't even need to use a hashtag really just make sure we get the question and we know which book it's about that's what the hashtags are for. And and actually, look, shout out all the way back to Jody, the listener, who came up with the idea of those hashtags because they are very useful when people are listening to old episodes and they want to comment. It means we know what they're talking about. So thank you. But anyway, Pratchat61, if you want to ask questions about Thud and hashtag make you chat <laughs> if uh, you want to ask us about where's my cow for next month. And if you know where our cow is, um, please, please do let us know. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And uh, until next time, please keep sending in questions. Bye.
You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux and Ben McKenzie. That's me. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat60. Thanks again, Jody. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.